This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Bates Motel. Now newly renovated. The Bates Motel. Check in, unpack, relax, take a shower. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, a double feature. The late night double feature feature show. 1960s Psycho from Alfred Hitchcock and 1998's Psycho from Gus Van Sant. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Give me what you got. What is the name of the child adopted by the Thorns in 1976's The Omen? Damien. That is correct. It's weird that they would say adopted. (laughs) Just giving up the plot right there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kelsey, I'll give you an easy one, too. Okay. Reanimator, 1985, was based on stories by what author? H.P. Lovecraft. That is correct. Herbert West, Reanimator. <laughs> All right, Kelsey, this week we're talking about Psycho and its remake. Incredibly famous Alfred Hitchcock movie, Psycho, and infamous remake from Gus Van Sant. First up is 1960s Psycho. Starring Anthony Perkins, Janet Lee, and Vera Miles. Screenplay by Joseph Stefano, based on the novel by Robert Block. And directed by, as I say, Alfred Hitchcock. What is Psycho about? A woman steals a lot of money. And she wants to go and meet up with her lover. But unfortunately, she stops at a motel. And things don't go so well. (laughs) It seems like it could be a plot of a movie today. Yeah. And I, I like it. Okay, well, here we go. Let's get this perfunctory bit out of the way. Should people watch Psycho? Yes. Yeah, I mean, yes. Duh. Come on. <laughs> Come on. One of the all-time great Hitchcock movies. His foray into horror. People say that. Most of his movies before this were murder mysteries. I don't understand. Murder mysteries and horror are different things. I guess. And there might be some flexibility there, like Rear Window is probably more of a thriller than a horror, but I'd still allow that. Rope is a thriller. It's not a horror. A lot of people think that this actually legitimized horror, because before this, an American cinema, horror was considered to be kind of schlocky you know i mean it kind of still is but even like frankenstein and stuff oh yeah Mm-hmm. Not yeah i mean we look man. back on it thinking that oh it's great cinema but at the time it was just popcorn flicks that you know didn't really have any intrinsic value but we loved the wolf man yep I'm, I'm not saying that movies before this horror movies before this are bad i'm saying culturally at the time they did not have the cachet that they did after Psycho came out. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we don't even need to talk about it further than this. You should see it. If you haven't seen it, see it. If you've seen it, 
see it again. I mean, I can't even count the number of times I've seen this movie. And I love it every single time. And I think you will, too. Yes. The movie is rated number one. You know when AFI did their whole 100 years thing? Mm-hmm. And they had several different categories. One of the categories was 100 Years, 100 Thrills. And this was the number one movie on that list. They also ranked it as number 14 in the greatest movies of all time list back in 2007. So, yeah, this movie's really good. It was selected in 1992 for preservation in the Library of Congress, the National Film Registry. So this is one of... The movies that we recognize are culturally significant and important and and uh, demand preservation. So I thought that that was pretty cool. So obviously, it's an important movie, let alone an important horror movie. So you can take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 1960s Psycho. <laughs> Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel, perfectly harmless looking, when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. This motel also has, as an adjunct, an old house, which is, if I may say so, a little more sinister looking, less innocent than the motel itself. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. In that window on the second floor, the single one in front, that's where the woman was first seen. Let's go inside. You see, even in daylight, this place still looks a bit sinister. Now, it was at the top of these stairs that the second murder took place. She came out of the door there and met the victim at the top. Of course, in a flash, there was the knife, and in no time, uh, I won't dwell upon it, but let, let, come upstairs. Here's the woman's room, still beautifully preserved, and the imprint of her figure on the bed where she used to lay. This was the son's room, but uh, we won't go in there because his favorite spot was the little parlor behind his office in the motel. Let's go down there. This young man, you had to feel sorry for him. After all, being dominated by an almost maniacal woman was enough to drive anyone to the extreme of, uh, uh, well, let's go in. His hobby, as you see, was taxidermy. Crow here, an owl there. Now, an important scene took place in this room. There was a private supper here. Let's go along to cabin number one. Well, they've cleaned all this up now. Big difference. You should have seen the blood. The whole, the whole place was, well, it's, it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. The murderer, you see, crept in here. Very slowly, of course, the shower was on. There was no sound. And, uh... 
cut, intact. No one will be admitted to see it except from the very beginning. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Rated M. Suggested for mature audiences. Parental discretion advised. All right, Kelsey, can you get us started? What happens at the beginning of Psycho? We meet Marion Crane, who is having kind of an affair. I guess for the the time they would have considered it an affair. Yeah. And she is sleeping with this guy, and he is in the middle of a divorce, or they're already divorced? They're already divorced. He's paying alimony already. Okay. And guys, I'm going to do my best to not constantly be bringing up the book, but I think that probably one of the biggest differences between the film and the book, and then I think the remake even made this an even bigger difference, is Sam's character. So Sam, in the novel... Is kind of a dick. It's not that Sam doesn't like Marion. It's just that he's definitely using her for sex. And I think the movie shows that she knows that. But I think the movie also tries to make it seem like he likes her a little bit more than the book does. Uh But he basically is using the excuse of, I'm super poor, so you wouldn't want to marry me anyway. Right, but... Ultimately, he also doesn't want to get married, right? Like, he just got out of a marriage, and he's not looking to get married again. But she's smart, too, and she knows that if she doesn't push for it, that this is all this is ever going to be. Right, and that's what she wants, and she's not afraid to say that, no, I want this. Yeah. Do you remember why they're in a long-distance relationship. Because the movie starts out in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where she lives. He He lives lives in in Fairvale, California, which is in, like, central California. It's a fake city. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Does the movie ever say? I know that the the remake does. The book does. And the remake does. What does the remake say? The remake says that they met on a cruise. That's what the book says. Yeah. Yeah. So they met on a cruise. They fall in love. And then, yeah, so they keep up this long-distance relationship. Which, I mean, California and Arizona are pretty close, but still. Right. I mean, and especially back then, it's going to be a very long drive. It's, I mean, depending on where exactly in California it is, it's probably like an 8 to 12 hour drive. Also, we would be remiss if we didn't point out, okay, look, okay, here's the thing. The whole show is about our reaction and our interpretation of these films. We're not here to give you every single possible interpretation and breakdown of the movie. So if there's one in particular you're looking for us to discuss and we don't, like maybe the themes of isolation in the movie, we're probably not going to get to that. There's so, so many themes there's in There's so many. And so if we don't get to them... We're sorry. Well, because, I mean, this movie's been picked apart for years and years and years. You've probably heard most interpretations of it already. Right. I think we should be focusing more on our specific thoughts. But here's one that I just can't watch the movie without going, oh, my God, look, she's wearing white. Her purse is white. And then later she turns into the black stuff. Yes. uh Uh-huh. Because at the beginning, she's pure, and at, and and after she takes the money, she's been tainted. Well, I think it's exciting to know that he saw a woman as pure, even if she had sex. For 1960, yes. that's a big deal. No, very much so, yeah. But I mean, Hitchcock has never been afraid of showing sexual desires within his movies. Yeah, we... I guess we won't do Rope on the show, but Rope has um, queer themes in it, so... 
is a little progressive for the 60s. And you have to append that for the 60s. He's pretty progressive. Yeah. So she is sleeping with him on her lunch break. And he wants to keep fooling around. And she's obviously irritated because she's just like, this isn't going anywhere. Yeah. I'm harming myself by continuing this, but I do like him. So now in the novel... She's got this whole backstory that we never hear in the films. But essentially, again, you have to be thinking about the time period. She had thought that she was going to get married to a guy. But then he went off to war. And it was in the 50s, so it must have been the Korean War. And he met somebody else. So she got screwed, basically. Mm -hmm. And then in that day and age, she's supposed to be like 30. In that day and age. like a spinster now. Exactly. It was like, you're never going to get married at that point. So that's why she's really like, please marry me because I just don't want to live this life anymore. Yeah. But he isn't interested. So she leaves him, not like leaves him, but she goes back to work and he's going to go back to California. She comes in and the lady working there is talking to her and she's got some funny lines. Uh, That's Patricia Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. Mm -hmm. Marion says she has a headache. So the other girl's like, here, take tranquilizers. (laughs) I took them on my wedding day. Uh You got a headache? Oh, it'll pass. Headaches are like resolutions. You forget them as soon as they stop hurting. Have you got some aspirin? I've got something. Not aspirin. My mother's doctor gave them to me the day of my wedding. Teddy was furious when he found out I'd taken tranquilizers. Which is a joke I understand for that time period. Which yeah. Is why it shouldn't be in the new one, because that doesn't make any sense anymore. Right, yeah. But sure. And they work for a real estate company. And the guy is selling a house to this old rich man who's buying it for his 18-year-old daughter who's getting married. Which, again, points out the fact that Marion is too old and not married. Right. Right. Yeah, because this his daughter is 18 years old, and she's a baby, but now she's, you know, getting married, and there's a lot of talk about how she's my baby girl and all of that, you know. Right, and, you know, it was still this time when it was like you were a little girl, and then you got married and you were a woman. Yeah, uh-huh. This guy is awesome. I love him so much. He's really funny. When He's pa- gross. When Patricia Hitchcock says... I declare, when he pulls out his $40,000, he says, I don't. That's how I get to keep it. (laughs) (laughs) He's really cute in that way. I declare. I don't. That's how I get to keep it. But so he's flaunting this $40,000. $40,000, which he specifically says, I never carry more than I can afford to lose. He could just afford to lose a whole house's worth of money. Right. And that's kind of. And $40,000 in the 60s is not a small amount for a house. I should say, like, my my grandparents bought my house that I grew up in for like 20-something thousand in the late 50s. So it was going to be a nice, nice house. It was going to be an okay house. But $40,000 in today's money is $348,516.22. It's a 758.8% inflation. (laughs) 
Which is funny because I was going to say, you just said what, 380? Uh, 343. 343. I was going to say, that's that's going to get you an, uh, an okay house. It's going to get you an okay house today. Yeah. A good uh-huh. house. Yeah. A nice house. We should also say that probably in Arizona, it gets you a better house than it gets you in Southern yes, California. That's true. In Southern California, it gets, a, gets you a dish, kind of a shitty little ranch home, two bedroom, you know. And we are not saying this because we look down on people. We will. No. I don't know I if we'll ever I be lived, able to afford a house. <laughs> I wish I lived in a place where on my salary, I could buy acres of land, which people who work at my company in other states can do. It's insane. Anyway, and she just got done hearing from. Sam about how he's like, you know, we could never be together because um, I'm so poor. I'm buried in debt from my father and I owe my wife alimony. And so what I get to keep practically nothing, I eat beans in the back of my hardware store. He owns a hardware store that I'm guessing he also inherited from his father. Her boss is like, I don't even want that kind of cash sitting in here. Please take it to the bank. Yes, take it to the bank. Where on Monday we'll have him come back in and give us a check and we can give him his cash back. Yeah, that's how uncomfortable he feels with a cash transaction, even in 1960. Mm-hmm. But she can't help herself. And she she had already said, like we said, she she told her, I have a headache. So she used that as an excuse to not have to come back. Uh-huh. And she's going to steal the money. Right. And I love the the communication of this because it's not, she doesn't do anything overt. We even hear her imagining what this cowboy is thinking later, like, oh, she didn't even look at me as I counted it out or whatever. Like, she does not give any indication that she's thinking of stealing this money because the next shot we see after she leaves is her at home with her purse on the bed and the envelope full of cash. And so Mm -hmm. she took it home with her. And that's the first time you're told that she had any plans on taking this money. Mm Mm-hmm. She decides to run away, and as Chris said, she's thinking about all the things that are going to happen on Monday. While she's driving, though, she does see her boss. Yes, as she's leaving town. And I think the remake did a better job of communicating that because the reason his boss and this cowboy were out and about when she's leaving, when she's driving out of town, is because they're going on a bender. They're celebrating the sale. And so I think the remake did a better job of explaining why the boss kind of looked at her funny because he's drunk. He's walking say, through town. They say and they're going out drinking. Yes, they do. But I don't think the actor in this version conveys drunkenness at all. He just looks confused. And in the remake, you see him kind of stumbling around and being like, what? Huh? Like, and it makes a lot more sense. Because before you're wondering, so what? He said she could leave early and now she's in her car. Like, all I thought was... Oh, he's wondering why if she had a headache, is she driving around town? Yes. Like, that's it. But on top of that, the reason they're out and about and and the reason he doesn't quite understand what's happening when he sees her is because he's plastered. (laughs) (laughs) The idea is that she's she's being consumed by guilt, fear, nervousness, anxiety. She's surprised at what she's capable of as well. You know, all these thoughts are swimming through her head. And the idea is that she did slightly have a headache before. So it's like all these different things are coming at her and she just is, she she's too scared to drive. So she pulls over to take a nap. And when she wakes up the next morning, it is to a cop who is very intimidating. I think yes. that with Hitchcock's shots, 
He really knows how to make people see. Oh, yeah, scary. with those sunglasses, the camera is inside the car when the cop is outside the car to give you the perspective of a driver with a cop peering into your vehicle. Like, it's designed to make you feel uncomfortable. And according to Patricia Hitchcock, his daughter, he hated police officers. Not like in the same way that people might hate police officers today, but he was terrified of them. They made him very, very uncomfortable and nervous. My father was petrified of policemen because apparently his father, when he was a child, knew the local police person. And uh, my father had done something wrong. I doubt anything very much. And so they said, well, we're going to take you over and you're going to have to go to the police station. Now, the story is that they put him in a jail cell. I highly doubt that. I would say he was probably put in a room, you know, and left by himself for a while, and that's it. Because he was always petrified of policemen. So that was that part, that scene where Janet is driving with the policeman, that was the menace, you know, not to him. That the, You couldn't have anything more menacing than that. And so... He puts a cop in this movie and he's supposed to be menacing. And him just watching you is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. Hitchcock is trying to translate that same feeling that he has to the audience. And I think he's very successful at doing it. Janet Lee does a great job of seeming surprised and scared. Yeah, this was the first scene that they filmed. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh -huh. She's got great big eyes and... And when she sits up like that, yeah. and she just immediately goes to start the car, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, I think she does a much better job of seeming surprised and scared than Anne Hesch does. Yeah. She even says, like, because he, he, he's just like, hey, hang on. And she's like, am I acting like something is wrong? And he goes, frankly, yes. Yeah. You are acting like uh -huh. something is weird. And I think that the cop does a good job of not only being scary, but also being like, I'm a little concerned, you know, right. like. It's not that he's looking at this woman and thinking she's up to something. He's worried about her. Like, yeah. are you in trouble? And Janet Lee kind of explains in interviews between, you know, this point where she's stolen the money and I guess kind of through the rest of the of, of her role, she's not good at being a bad person. She is not a thief. She's a very bad thief. I mean, she is clumsy. She obviously can't disguise what she's feeling. I mean, she's so obvious because she's not practiced. So this is not her nature, but it's a grasp. It's a desperate grasp at life. It's not like, oh my God, you idiot. You're really acting suspicious. Don't you realize that? No, she doesn't. She has no control over her behavior right now. She is legitimately nervous and scared. And there's a reason why she, she keeps acting acting suspicious. It's because she's bad at being a crook. Mm -hmm. That's important. After this interaction, she decides to get a new car. Not that it matters because the cop follows her anyway. Yes. <laughs> well, she sees him pull off the, the, the right. highway. Yeah. And so she's like, okay, good. I'm going to go get a car from California Charlie or whatever his name is. Something like that. I don't want any bad word of mouth about California Charlie. <laughs> and they stop in Bakersfield. And... She tries to trade in her, get this, it's a Ford Mainline, which has Arizona license plate for a Ford Custom 300 with California license plate. And apparently Ford or its parent company or whatever was an investor or they worked with Paramount who distributed the movie or something like that. And so they replaced, it's a real car dealership, but they replaced all the vehicles in there with Fords or Ford variations. 
the guy comes out and he's trying to do his whole salesman bit and she's just not having it. She's just like, there's nothing wrong with my car. I just want to change. I just want to make this decision and get out of here. And he's like, whoa. Yeah. And again, she's like, is there anything actually wrong with what I'm with what I want to do? He's like, well, I mean, I guess not. But he's very suspicious, just like the cop was. Mm hmm. He's just like, you know, I've never seen a woman high high pressure the salesman, and you should never make a decision in a hurry. You are in a hurry, aren't you? Somebody chasing you? Of course not. Please. Well, it's the first time the customer ever high pressured the salesman. And then at one point when he says the price, she's like, oh, that much? And he's like, aha. Always have time to haggle. Yeah. And then she's like, okay. The and price. That, that, like, because for a moment he felt like, oh, here we go. Here's what I'm used to. Uh-huh. And she's just like, no, that's fine. And that makes him even more nervous. Right. $700 is what he wants, along with her trade-in, to get another used vehicle. In today's money, that would be about $6,000. And at first, he's like, hey, if I check out your papers, I'm going to find out this belonged to you, right? Like, I'm not taking a hot car, am I? And she's like, nope, got all the papers. And then she, like, tries to drive off immediately, and this other dude pulls up with her car, hey! and he's like, hey! <laughs> hey! You Just put your, it in the back and let's your, go. Your luggage, yeah. And she drives away as the police officer is walking up to talk to Charlie about this, and she drives off. Now, I thought it's an amazing shot of the cop pulls up. He, he's looking out, her, out his window at her at the dealership, and then he makes a U-turn. He flips a bitch. And he parks on the other side of the street, and then he gets out of his car intentionally and just stands there, arms spread out on his car, and just stands there staring at her and watching this transaction go down. And that is such an incredible shot of him. Of him, do It's very intimidating, and plus he looks kind of badass. <laughs> so she's driving away in her new car with California plates, and... She's going through her head more of what people are going to say, right? What is California Charlie going to say to the police officer? Heck, officer, that was the first time I ever saw the customer high pressure the salesman. Somebody chasing her? I better have a look at those papers, Charlie. She looked like a wrong one to you? Acted like one. The only funny thing, she paid me $700 in cash. What are they going to say when they find out that the money never made it to the bank? No, I haven't the faintest idea. As I said, I last saw your sister when she left this office on Friday. She said she didn't feel well and wanted to leave early. I said she could. That was the last I saw. Oh, wait a minute. I did see her sometime later driving. Uh, I think you'd better come over here to my office quick. What is this cowboy dude going to do? And she's imagining the absolute worst thing. Like, oh, I'm going to take it from her sweet flesh or whatever it is that he says. Well, I ain't about to kiss off $40,000. I'll get it back, and if any of it's missing, I'll replace it with her fine, soft flesh. I'll track her, never you doubt it. But as she starts thinking about it, she gets more and more straight-faced, more and more resolute, to the point where when he's like, God damn, she didn't even look at me when I was counting it out. She's stone cold. And she's like, yeah, you know what? I am stone cold. I I can do this. I really do have a bad side. And she starts to get just the slightest grin on her face. He even says she was even flirting with me. And that's when she gets a full-fledged smile. Yeah. Uh -huh. You check with the bank, no? They never laid eyes on her, no? You still trust him? 
Hot creeper, she sat there while I dumped it out. Hardly even looked at it. Planning and and even flirting with me. And throughout this whole time, we haven't been talking about the, of course, the iconic music that is playing. Yes, let's talk about the music a little bit. Bernard Herman did the score for it. Alfred Hitchcock, apparently, when they finished filming, was like, nope, this doesn't work at all. And what he wanted to do was take what he had what he had and then recut it into a television episode because he had his Alfred Hitchcock's presents TV show. And in order to keep costs down and everything, and we'll get into that, uh, he had his television crew filming the whole thing. It wasn't a movie crew. So he was going to make it part of his TV show, but instead he gave it to Bernard Herman, who did the score. And that's when he had the confidence that, okay, no, this is actually very effective. only reason this movie as a whole works is because of the music. He said a third of why the film is so effective is because of Bernard Herrmann's score. Uh, which is, by the way, entirely strings. There's no percussion, there's no wind instruments, it's just entirely strings, the entire score. But it was so good that the shower scene was just going to be silent. It wouldn't have any music at all, but Herman scored it. <laughs> and with And thank God. Hitchcock changed his mind. Like he was very, very happy with what uh, Bernard Herman did. He paid him twice as much as his actual salary as a result. Nice. He paid him $34,000 or thereabouts, which comes out to approximately just under $300,000 today. Nice. Which is nothing compared to what Hitchcock got paid, though. We'll get to that a little bit later. Speaking again of the AFI's 100 years lists, they did 100 years of film scores. This is number four. Not horror film scores, just film scores. This is number four. Do you know what one, two, and three are? Yeah, number three is Lawrence of Arabia by Maurice Charest. Uh, number two is Gone with the Wind by Max Steiner. And number, and number one is Star Wars by John Williams. Fuck yeah. So that's all I had to say about Herman's score. It's very iconic, and it definitely pulls the movie along. Because there are times when the movie does feel a little slow. Especially when it's just focused on Marion. Well, I mean, there's a lot of just her driving. Yes. So, do you want to tell that story? The first time I ever saw this movie, aside from, you know, when my parents would like, oh, it's on, they would put it on for like a couple minutes until the commercial, and then they'd move on, right? Yeah. Aside from that, the first time I was seeing it, like, without any commercials was at a Halloween party in high school, and I think I was like a sophomore. And it was just on in the background. I don't even know if we had the the sound on. And if we did, it was very, very low. And I just remember thinking, every time I would look at the TV screen, she would be driving. And I was like, <laughs> what is this movie? I, I, how is this scary? She's always just driving in uh -huh. her car. But then you throw in that score, and it does really pull you through these scenes. But yes. if you notice that the score is doing a lot of the heavy lifting, the score and Janet Lee's face are just doing a lot of the heavy lifting in those driving scenes, you start to think, wow, there's a lot of her driving. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I think the I think one of the things the remake does pretty well is really cut that stuff down. Sure. Once she gets to the Bates Motel, I think the pace really picks right. up. She's starting to get really bleary eyed and the rain's really coming down hard and she can't see the road in front of her, but she does see this motel. And we so find she, out later that she accidentally pulled off the main highway and didn't even realize it. Yeah. And she pulls in, and there's nobody in there. So she looks up at the house that's right above the motel, and she can see someone walking in the window. So she starts honking her horn. And down comes Norman Bates. Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins. Just incredible. He, Yeah, Anthony Perkins is so... Perfect for this He's role? Perfect. There are very few moments, I say perfect hyperbolically, there are very few moments where I think, oh, well, that was the wrong choice. Like, he just so naturally embodies the character of Norman Bates. It's incredible. And I've actually, I don't know if it was like an, an interview with his wife I read or something, but a lot of people say it was easy for him to play this role because he was used to living a double life. Because he was gay. He was gay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So having to show a certain side of himself and keeping his quote-unquote dark side yeah. inside, that's something that he was used to. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people say that that probably helped him with his performance. And beyond Anthony Perkins' performance, the character of Norman Bates is just so iconic in the vein of famous serial killers that are just mildly handsome men who seem normal but have this intensity about them. If you've ever been to Universal Studios and you've gone on the tram tour, they take you by the set, which isn't where it was when they filmed. They tore the whole thing down. They moved it. They put it up. And I think at one point it even got destroyed and they had to rebuild it. It's there. And you go by the Bates Motel in the house and Norman comes out They didn't used of, to do that. that. That's a new thing that they started doing. Yeah, but, but he, yes. He comes out of the house and comes down the stairs and and watches you as you drive by. And he and starts, he starts to, to kind you. of run after you. And it is incredible. I it's love great. it. It's such just a simple, stupid thing. I have it on my, my phone from when but we went awesome. a couple years yeah. ago. <laughs> so Norman checks her in. She signs in with the name Marie Samuels. And she says that her hometown is Los Angeles, and he's just chatting with her, and he's very charming. And when she says Los Angeles, as he's reaching up to grab the keys for cabin three, he stops, and he grabs the keys for cabin one. Almost like, oh, this is a woman of ill repute. She's (laughs) from Los Angeles. And he grabs the keys to cabin one, which we find out later is important, because he has a peephole into cabin one. Mm Mm-hmm. But she signs in and he offers to make her dinner because she's hungry. And there's a really important part here that gets me every single fucking time. And she asks, are there any restaurants? And he's like, oh, yeah, there's there's uh, this restaurant. It's about 10 miles away just outside Fairvale. And she's like, oh, am I that close to Fairvale? And he's like, 15 miles. She's like, oh, huh. Cabin one. It's closer in case you want anything. Right next to the office. I want sleep more than anything else, except maybe food. Well, there's a big diner about 10 miles up the road, just outside of Fairvale. Am I that close to Fairvale? 15 miles. I get your bags. She was so, so close. Mm-hmm. But there is something very important that wouldn't have happened if she did reach Sam. So 
it's tragic that she's so close. And they don't even really comment on it beyond that. Oh, is Fairvell that close? Yeah, 15 miles. There's no commentary on it. But there is this just this tragedy in those two lines <laughs> uh, that that yeah, man, she was so close. And she, she if she only she didn't stop here. But he invites her for dinner and he says he'll come and get her with his trusty umbrella. She unpacks waiting for Norman Bates. And then we hear shouting from the house, which I've never understood. Her her windows open. I know. And it's not really that far away. It's just on a hill. So it looks like that. It looks like it's forced perspective. And it's- it is. And they wanted to do that to make it seem big because in reality, it is just for show. It's not a real house. It's a fake house. And so they did the perspective and it looks perfect. But if you're going to do that perspective, you're telling me that it's far away. No, and you might raining, get the illusion that it's far away. And it's through closed doors. It stops raining. It's stopping raining. And it's I've an old never, house. I've never believed it. You also have to consider, just like with our room right here that isn't insulated very well, all the window treatments and everything like that, they're not very well insulated. I don't even think this glass is double pane. But sound travels through it so fucking easy. Like, I bet you people can hear us recording this outside. I doubt it. No, and we're just talking. I know. You can't hear me when I'm yelling at you from the living room. Yeah, that's through this house. But they're upstairs in her room where the only physical thing separating where they are and where she is is shitty glass with no insulation. <laughs> and she and the mom is shouting at him. I guess. I've never believed it. <laughs> anyway, she's shouting at him, talking about how, oh, bringing a woman in here over my dead body, uh... I know what's going on in your head, you dirty, dirty boy. (laughs) So Norman's mom is being really verbally abusive towards him. And he yells at her to shut up, shut up. Oh, I refuse to speak of disgusting things because they disgust me. You understand, boy? Go on, go tell us you'll not be appeasing her ugly appetite with my food or my son. Or do I have to tell her because you don't have the guts? Huh, boy? You have the guts, boy? Shut up! Shut up! So instead of serving her dinner in the house, in the kitchen that's very homey, he takes a sandwich and a drink down to her on a tray. And it stopped raining by this point. She says, like, oh, I think I've caused you trouble. And he's like, no, but I mean, I wish you could apologize for other people. She gets like this sometimes. And there's a subtle kind of thing where she's going to invite him into her room. He does not accept. He feels uncomfortable. He feels that his mother would not be happy. Yes. So instead, he invites her into the office where it's heated. And then it feels too officious. Yes. Eating in an office is just just too officious. <laughs> I, I have the parlor back here. All right. So he takes her into the back room of the office, which is a parlor. Just a place where you sit down, <laughs> basically, is what a parlor is. And... There's all these taxidermied birds everywhere, an owl and other sorts of avian beings. He explains that he doesn't like the way that beasts look when they're stuffed. It's just weird thinking of birds and beasts being like different categories of animal. Well, it's especially interesting because he points out before they even have this conversation, she's eating and he says, you eat like a bird. Yes, 
And she's like, well, you'd know, of course. And he's like, well, actually, two I things. stuff things. Yeah, I, it's not that I'm obsessed with birds. I don't know a lot about birds. As a matter of fact, I think it's a falsity. And he stumbles over the word falsity. I hear the expression, eats like a bird. It is really a false, fa- false. That they even don't eat very much. I think actually they eat quite a lot because bird metabolisms are really high, especially the smaller the bird. Like hummingbirds have crazy high metabolism. That's why they consume all that sugar. (laughs) They need it to keep beating their wings like that and keeping their heart going. I feel like the original does a better job of her just being like, that's odd. Whereas in the new one, it's more like, that's creepy. You're like, right. When she says it, it's very offensive in the remake. In this one, she's like, Oh, that's a strange hobby. Curious, Curious, I mean. Strange hobby. Curious. Uncommon, too. Oh, I imagine so. She says curious as if to clarify her original statement that it's an odd hobby. And it's like, I don't mean that you're weird. I just mean it's interesting. Like, I don't know anything about it, and it makes me very curious. Whereas in the remake, it's very like, that's a stupid hobby. That's a strange hobby. (laughs) Curious. Curious, but stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's 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 much more offensive in the remake than it is in this one where she's trying to be polite. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with time period. I understand that back then it was everyone's nice. Yeah. There, there's no question, especially if you're a woman. Right. You're not going to be rude. And people are into having private conversations with strangers, which is just so weird to me. Watching that, I'd be like, no, I'm good. I'd rather not eat than share a dinner with a stranger. Like, that's, am I weird? (laughs) No, we just, we have a very different outlook these days. Yeah. uh We're far more concerned about what this person's going to do. I kind of hate talking to strangers. Oh, so do I. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. You're the one that's always inviting strangers to talk to us. Yeah, but, I mean, like, in person, when... It's it's just carrying on a conversation with somebody you don't really know that well, and you're you're just thinking, oh god, how long till this is over? But we're also, I mean, that's just a distinction of people. I remember very specifically one time you and I were at Disneyland and we were in line. We were oh, playing. Jesus we were playing heads up. Yeah. And this dude and his girlfriend, I don't think his girlfriend was very much into it. Yeah. But like the dude kept trying to like play with us, and we were like, what the. And then I told my roommate at the time, and she was like, why didn't you play with him? Yeah, You know, they're just different people. They're just people who are different. I don't get that. I was like, I can't say, dude. You're weird because we'd be stuck next to him for 10 more minutes. Right, exactly. So I was just like, I guess he's going to force himself into this thing that we're doing. That's (laughs) really rude. But like I said, and then I went and told my roommate, she was just like, what's the problem with that? Yeah, uh-huh. Well, why don't you want to play with more people? I don't know this person. I'm here with my girlfriend. <laughs> Not with some rando. Wow, we got way off topic there. But anyway, on top of that, I feel like Janet Lee does a much better job of showing that she's actually, like, friendly and, like, honestly, even when Norman goes a little crazy, she's not even that put off by it. Right. She's she's more apologetic than anything. She's like, oh, OK, yeah, I guess I did say your mom belongs in a loony bin. I I'm, I didn't mean for it to come off that way. Whereas in the new one, she's more like scared. All of right, him. creepo. Yeah. Yeah. Creeper. yeah. Um, but so the reason I really wanted to talk about taxidermy. OK. Is because. OK, so 
Long story short, we did not enjoy watching it. I watched it because my friend did, and then she moved, and then we kept in contact, and we watched it together for a long time. So we watched The Bachelor for a long time. And one, there was a woman on The Bachelor who was into taxidermy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Specifically, she uh-huh. did mice. I liked her a lot. <laughs> okay. My entire life, I associated taxidermy with murderers because of Psycho. Uh-huh. And then you see that there are people who really have this as a uh-huh. hobby. Yeah. That's nuts to me. Right. Oh, my God. You, you stuff dead animals like it's some crazy concept no she doesn't act like that she acts like oh i didn't i didn't i guess i never thought of it as a thing that people did for fun you know but i guess people have stuffed animals so i guess it's a thing people do like that's more how she approaches it than what you might think of now if you just ran into somebody somebody randomly who's a taxidermist be like you're creepy. I don't want you to kill me. I'm out of here. <laughs> but apparently it's a thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. People do it. Yep. This conversation about taxidermy <laughs> leads into her saying, hey, you know what? Men need hobbies. And he's like, I wouldn't really call it a hobby. A hobby is supposed to be something you do with your spare time, not something that takes up all of your time. And yeah. she's like, oh, is your time so empty? And this is when he starts to talk about who he is. And you wanted to ha- talk about Norman Bates. Yeah, let's talk about Norman Bates. First of all, he is so fucking cute. He's oh, just I know. adorable. Anthony Perkins was a very good looking man yeah. back then. He's A ranked- little skinny, but good looking otherwise. Yeah, He's ranked as the second greatest villain he's number two on afi's 100 years 100 heroes let me guess hannibal actor was number one yes yes you're right uh it goes hannibal Lecter, norman bates darth vader the wicked witch nurse ratchet is uh number five do you know who the number one hero is though superman atticus finch then indiana jones then james bond then rick blaine from casablanca and Will Kane from High Noon. Superman not even on the list? No. I mean, I imagine he gets... Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess Hannibal Lecter, Norman Bates, Wicked Witch, Nurse Ratchet. Those are all based on literary characters, too. Hmm. Atticus Finch. No, he's not on here. <laughs> or at least he's not in the top. Oh, he's number 26. Jeez. Yeah. Above him is Lou Gehrig from Pride of the Yankees. Also, around the set, Hitchcock would almost exclusively call Anthony Perkins Master Bates. Which I knew. Yeah. And it wasn't until Chris said it out loud that I got the fucking joke. (laughs) I was like, that's cute. Hello, Master Bates. (laughs) And then you say it out loud and you're like, I'm an idiot. Yep, and then they took it and did something with it in the remake. Yes. Hooray. Yes. Anyway, the story he tells is that his father died when he was really young and his mother raised him herself, but that she's becoming mentally ill. She has outbursts at times and she's uncontrollable, and he hates that about her, even though he loves her. And it got really bad 10 years ago. When she met a man who convinced her to build the motel. So it got really bad when he died. When her 
ex-lover died. And she goes, well, she, well, at least she had you. And he goes, a son is a poor... Substitute for a lover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just too great a loss for her. She had nothing left. Except you. Well, a son is a poor substitute for a lover. But he does say earlier when she says, well, don't you go out with your friends, he says a man's best friend is his mother. And do you go out with friends? Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Very so, famous line. So he makes all the excuses in the world for her. Right. But for him, it's just, well, no, she's my best friend. Yeah. Uh-huh. So anyway, they have this conversation. Norman gets a little mad at her and he... He dresses her down when she suggests, hey, you know what? You could get some freedom. And we suggest oh so very delicately. With our, we, we click our thick tongues. And yeah, he has this whole speech about how offended he is by this. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. And she's like, listen, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. You're right. I crossed a line. I, I just, I didn't know what the situation was, so I apologize. After this conversation, she says, well, I'm going to go to bed. I got to get up really early. It's a long drive back. What we're finding out is that after this conversation about private traps that we get ourselves into. Yeah, because I think this this version does a much better job of, like we said, not making Marion seem super scared of him. Like, yeah, it's he's a little weird. But even she can listen to him, even when he's getting really upset and, like, angry with her for suggesting that he should drop his mother off in a home. He's like, you know what? Even I've thought about it. Yeah. And, but you know what? She just goes a little mad sometimes, don't we all? Yeah, and we she's all go like, a little mad sometimes. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? And she's like, well, shit, you're right. Look what I just did. Yeah, I went a little mad, and I'd like to. I'd like it to stay that way. I just went a little mad, but that's not who I am. I can get myself out of this. It's going to suck, but at least I can take back what, like, the bad. This is my only opportunity to take back the bad thing I did, and I'm not going to pass it up. And he asks back where, and she says, Arizona. And he's like, oh, right. And so when she goes to her room, he spins the sign-in guest book around and he looks at it and it says, oh, she also re-says that her name is Crane as well. And he looks and it says Marie Samuels, Los Angeles. (laughs) And now he knows she's lying. She's hiding from someone and she's done something bad and nobody knows where she is. That's what Norman Bates knows. And as she's getting ready for her shower, in his parlor, he takes down one of his pictures of a bird, and he has a little peephole, and he watches her undress. Again, birds. He's a watcher. He watches birds. Uh And he doesn't get to keep them until he has killed them and stuffed them. Yes. So. A lot of symbolism. And then he, he leaves, and he goes back to the house. She does math. On Bates Motel letterhead, if you want to make your friends jealous, friends back at home. Envious. If you want to make your friends envious. Stationary with Bates Motel printed on it in case you want to make your friends back home feel envious. She does the math to figure out how much she's spent 
she knows how much she has left and she does the math minus 40,000 to determine how much she needs to cover when she returns this money. She's probably going to lose her job, but she's going to attempt to salvage her dignity. And she tears up the figures, throws it in the toilet and flushes it. Which, as everyone knows, is the first flushing toilet in an American movie. That's why they even did it. And it's so dumb, because if you flushed it, how are they going to get the pieces of paper back? What do you mean? That's what happens. No, 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 no. What happens is she throws them in the toilet, and one of the pieces that she tore up fell on the floor behind the toilet. Um. And not even Norman finds it later. And it flushes. So, apparently, what happened... Oh, I should probably say this. A boy's best friend is is a boy's best friend is his mother was the number fifty six movie in AFI's movie quotes list. So this this movie shows up all over the place on these top lists for the American Film Institute. I like we all go a little mad sometimes. Yeah, that one's really good. But maybe that's because of Scream. Who's flipped out? He's gone mad. We all go a little mad sometimes. <laughs> no, Billy. <laughs> Yeah, he says it in Scream. Skeet Ulrich says it. Skeet, 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 skeet. I can't say skeet on the radio. Anyway, the screenwriter, Joseph Stefano, he was determined to get a flushing toilet on camera. He was like, no, we're doing this. It's happening. That was his goal. Mm-hmm. And he told Hitchcock, we're getting a toilet on here. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock told him, listen, you're the screenwriter. And apparently this is the way Hitchcock was at this time in his career. He was like, listen, I'm the director. You're the actor. You're the writer. You're the composer. Everyone does their job, and I trust you all to do your jobs. I, as the director, know you need to go from here to here at this time. You figure out how you do that. Mm -hmm. And if you want, this is what he told Janet Lee. if you want, I can help you with the necessary motivation for your character, why you would move from here to here. But you're the actor. I'm going to defer to you. Just like with Joseph Stefano, you're the screenwriter. I'm going to defer to you on this. If you want to get the toilet flushing in this movie, then my advice to you is make it indispensable. Make it to where it has to be in the movie for the sake of the plot. And so he did. He wrote it in that she does the math. She disposes of it that way. And that's where a piece is found later. So it is indisposable. So the censors could not tell him to take it out without having to ruin the movie. And so that's that's what he did. It was integral to the scene. And so they can't take it out. I also love that that kind of ties in with when Norman is showing her the room. I understand that it's he also... He doesn't say bathroom. Yeah, he won't say bathroom. And I understand that's part of his character, but uh-huh. it's almost like a slight on... Uh, the censors who are afraid to talk yes, about bathrooms. Yes, they're afraid stuff. to yeah. talk about bathrooms. And the... Uh, over there. The bathroom. You're like Norman Bates, you're a child. You uh-huh. can't you can't even accept the fact that we are human beings and we need to relieve ourselves. Yes. And there are times when we're naked and we need to clean our bodies. Uh-huh. So she gets in the shower and without checking the water temperature. No, yeah, she gets in the shower and then turns the shower head on. Always bothered me. Right onto her. Like you that don't would know be how freezing. hot it's gonna be, you don't know how cold it's gonna be. Uh-huh. You have no idea. 
idea. I am notorious for turning showers on and then letting them run for like five, ten minutes. We live in California. <laughs> the drought's over. It wasn't for many years and you did this anyway. But my point is, is I get it to a particular temperature. I do not get in a cold shower. I also do not get in a hot shower. I understand. Neither I do get I. Into warm but showers. I don't want to sit on for five minutes. Yeah, it's just something I've I've gotten since I was a kid. So Chris Wastewater, everybody should know that. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'm not proud of it. So she gets in the shower and is stabbed to death with a chef's knife. <laughs> That's it. That's all we're going to say about the the shower scene. It's the most famous, iconic scene of all time. (laughs) You you know it. Like, do we need to talk about it? Yes. Okay. We're going to talk about it a little bit. What happens is Norman's mother comes in, peels back the shower curtain, and starts stabbing away. And there are tons and tons of cuts, more cuts than there are seconds, which was very unheard of for the time. Now, it's really fucking common, and people use it all the time, and so many cuts hide the actual action, so it's very difficult get to away appreciate. With, yeah. You get away with not ever having to show anything. Right, exactly. Which is why oneers are so fascinating now, because it's just not something you do anymore, and you hardly notice oneers in old films, because a lot of the movie is like that. Hitchcock did tons of them. I mean, like in Rope, where it's practically a one or throughout the whole thing, if it wasn't for the fact that film reels are only so long, it would have been just one long one or anyway, lots and lots of cuts. And that was to get away from the censors. Yes, it was one of the things where famous story, the censors say, you could see a nipple. They're like, you have to cut the nipple because they couldn't see a nipple when they when they edited it. And so they're like, OK, um, here and they just gave him back the exact same reel and they're like good glad you got rid of that nipple (laughs) really (laughs) so the whole point is the scene really is designed to trick your eye and they do things like they hold the knife point up to her actual stomach and then pull it back really fast and then they run that in reverse and that's that that shot of the knife coming straight towards her stomach and Janet Lee did everything apparently she did all of that except for the disposal of the body that was a body double but her in the shower that really is Janet Lee for every single shot and the costume lady gave her moleskin to cover her naughty bits but she's in a shower. Yeah, it started to disintegrate. <laughs> yes. And so according to Janet Lee, she's like, well, I could be modest and ruin this take, but I really don't want to do this again. So I guess I'll be immodest. And she's like, there's tons of crew and everyone doing all the lighting and all the electricians and the rafters and all that stuff. She's like, well, they're just going to get a show. I thought, you know what? I don't want to do this damn thing again. I really don't want to. I said, I don't, I'm not going to be modest. You know, let them look. I am not going to stop this shot. And I didn't. And they did. <laughs> and she just went ahead and did the rest of the scene anyway. And apparently that's, that's where they gathered a lot of their footage. And what they did is something they just do not do at the time. You've heard of the difference between 
a single camera and a multi-camera sitcom or drama or something like that, right? What's a good example? Friends is a multi-camera sitcom. Basically, you get different angles. They have a bunch of different cameras running at the same time, so they have a bunch of angles on the same performance. Yeah. Now, movies don't generally do that, and prestige shows like Breaking Bad or something like that those are those are usually a single camera format because the cinematographer and the director know specifically what shots they're going for. Mm-hmm. So they don't just try to pick up every possible angle they can get. You save that for things like explosions and stuff like that because you can only do those so many times. Well, apparently in this, they filmed this with a multi-camera setup, which is which again, in 1960 was just not something that you did. And that's how they got all the different angles with a minimum number of performances. Even though in a total of... God, was it? It was very, very short shoot. It was like three to six weeks. They filmed the whole fucking movie. This shower scene was a full week of the shooting to get it right. And she gets stabbed and all of that. The mom runs away and she reaches out, which is another famous shot. She's she's laying. She's sitting down in the tub with her head against the back wall. She reaches out towards the camera like for help. And, and it looks so much more realistic in the original. Yeah. Than it does in the new one. In the and, new one, it looks like it's totally forced. Yeah. And she grabs the shower curtain and tries to pull herself up and the shower curtain rips off the rings and she falls forward just over like, the totally edge of the Like I totally believe tub. that this person mm-hmm. is only halfway there mentally and just takes it and just falls. Like it looks supernatural. Yes. I just realized what I just said. That is not what I meant. I meant that it looks natural. Superbly. <laughs> <laughs> And then we get this shot, which is a still frame as it rotates. And as soon as it's done rotating, it becomes actual live footage and it pulls away from Marion's eye. So it, it, it tracks the blood, which, by the way, was just chocolate syrup because he tried everything. According to Janet Lee, he, he did traditional red stage blood. But since it's black and white, chocolate syrup. Just worked well, especially in the water. Do we know why he chose black and white? Yes, we do. Little side break here. Let's talk about the budget of Psycho and why it's in black and white. So the movie cost about $800,000 to make. In today's money, that's just shy of $7 million. It earned more than $40 million, which today is three hundred and forty, more than $340 million. Alfred Hitchcock earned about 60% of that. Jesus. Because, so he was working for Paramount, right? And he was going to work for Universal. And he still had one movie to make for Paramount. And he was like, I'm making Psycho. And they're like, we're certainly not paying you to make Psycho. (laughs) And, oh, we don't have any space, is what they said. And it was during kind of a drought in cinema at the time. And so he's he knew very well that they had the space. It was very obvious that they did not want to help him out. So instead, he did it for Universal. He did it on Universal's lots, and Paramount just maintained the rights to distribute. So they would get a lot of the profits. And he said, okay, fine. I will fund the movie. Oh, that's I will, right. He paid I for will, its own money. Yes. I forgot about that. I will use my television crew... From my TV show, I will film it in black and white, 
but I'm taking 60% of the profit. And they're like, fine, this is going to be garbage anyway. And it ended up making $40 million. <laughs> Again, in today's money, it costs less than $7 million to make. It made more than $340 million. That was a really big part of it. So part of what, why he did it in black and white was because of cost. It was just cheaper. The other reason why he did it, or an other reason why he did it, according to his daughter, is that horror movies in black and white did okay. They were cheap to make. And relative to their cost, they made a lot of money. They were very successful, but they weren't looked at as good films. Even Hitchcock was like, this is schlock. So what if, what if we made a movie like this, but it was a good movie? <laughs> what if it was a Hitchcock movie? <laughs> How much could it really make? And he was proven right by that. Also, apparently, he was a big fan of the film Diabolique from 1955, which was in black and white. It's based on a novel called uh, She Who Was No More by Pierre Belot and Thomas Narcejac. And he tried to buy the rights to make that movie back in, in the early 50s, but a French director got the rights instead. And he really, really liked the book. He really liked the movie. And apparently... Hitchcock almost got the rights, but he was just too late by some reports by only a couple of hours of getting the rights to Diabolique. So he never got to make it. And he was going to make that in black and white. And he thought the movie turned out really well in black and white. And so he wanted to do the same thing. So all in all, Hitchcock was really tired of making big budget movies with lots of big stars. And uh, he wanted to be more experimental. He wanted to make a movie on the cheap, see what Hitchcock could do with a genre that's typically thought to be just trash. And he was trying to do basically something different. If he did not do this, he would have made about $250,000. That was his salary for making a movie at the time, which today translates to just over $2 million. Meanwhile, he made over $15 million, I think is... I don't know what the exact number is, but $15 million, which today translates to $128 million, just shy of $130 million, actually, on this movie. When again, he would have made two if it was just his salary. So instead, he made it himself and ended up making a lot of money. Now, the funny thing that people like to point out is, is that Diabolique has a murder in a bathtub, and Psycho has a murder in a shower. So between these two black and white murder movies... You just can't get clean. <laughs> and also, apparently, some father wrote Alfred Hitchcock admonishing him for scaring his daughter, I think, because his daughter was already scared of bathtubs because of Diabolique <laughs> and then saw Psycho and now refuses to take a shower. And he was pissed at Hitchcock. And Hitchcock, maybe apocryphally, wrote back and said, get her dry cleaned. <laughs> that was his response to her. So that's the story of why Psycho is in black and white and how much damn money this thing made. Also why it was filmed on Universal's lot, despite the fact that Hitchcock was not working for Universal yet. He did have an office on their grounds, but he was still contracted to Paramount. And this was his last Paramount movie. Ultimately, he would sell his rights because he owned a large portion of the movie. He would sell his rights to MGM 
who owned Paramount. And then they would ultimately sell all their stake in the movie back to Universal. So now Universal owns 100% of Psycho in a very roundabout way. So she's in the shower. She's leaning over the edge of the tub. We followed the blood into the drain. The drain, as the water swirls, turns into a swirling image of her eye. And it pans out. And she's at least attempting to be perfectly motionless. Apparently, ophthalmologists reached out to Hitchcock and said, hey, her eyes are still contracted. When you die, they dilate. And they couldn't, according to Janet Lee, they couldn't use contacts because contacts back in the 60s were awful. They were practically glass. And you have to spend a long time, a number of weeks, getting yourself adjusted to them before you can actually wear them in reality. And they just did not have the time. So they just couldn't do that effect. But the ophthalmologist reached out to him after the fact and said, there's something called belladonna drops, which dilate your pupils. For they do that for eye exams and stuff like that. You could use that in the future. Now, it was too late for this movie, but Hitchcock's subsequent movies, he actually did that. So, you know, when they dilate your eyes and you and you get to wear those Brett the Hitman heart sunglasses? No. <laughs> those plastic strip sunglasses that go across your face? No. I guess I'm the one with the bad eyesight. <laughs> anyway, we hear from the house. Blood! Blood! Also, oh God. Which was just not a thing that you said in movies at the time. Uh, mother, oh God, mother, blood, blood. So yeah. Norman discovers what his mother did and goes to clean up the mess as he always has. Yes, he runs down. He, he doesn't know exactly what's happened. He just knows that his mom is covered in blood. Now, this is one of the few times in the movie that I really appreciate the time that they took with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This next scene is a long scene. It's a long scene, but I feel like it kind of needed to be. And it really, really gives a lot of insight into Norman Bates and how he's reacting to each thing, especially when you consider what we discover about him later. And for everyone who knows and everyone probably knows what happens, I don't think I'm talking about what you think I'm talking about, but we'll get there. Okay. But so, yeah, this scene is so, so good, and he really takes his time with it. And I love that Hitchcock felt that that was necessary. I don't think it was necessary to do quite as much with Janet Lee driving. Maybe we spent a little too much time there. Maybe we spent a little too much time watching Janet Lee get dressed and get ready to leave. But here, it's really vital and important that we know how Norman feels about this. Yes. So he comes running in, and as soon as he rounds that corner into the bathroom, he sees her lying there and covered in blood, and he almost throws up. He's disgusted by it. And it seems way more realistic in this because of the time that he takes than Uh it is in the new one. In the new one... It's almost like he goes through the motions. And I can see why you might pick that as a choice Mm -hmm. for his character. But I feel that Hitchcock's version is far more believable and it leads up to who this person ends up being. Whereas, like I said, with Vince Vaughn's version, with Van Sant's version, it seems like he goes too quickly because he's doing it because he's supposed to. And I know that that's what they're going for in Hitchcock's But I also feel like Norman seems much more surprised. Yeah. In this one. Yeah. Like, he knew what he was going to see, but when he saw it, it was too much. Yeah. And I appreciate that. No, I agree. 
And so we see him. He rolls up the body. This is where they used a body double in the shower curtain, puts it in the car, mops up the floor, gets all of her stuff, throws it back in her luggage, including the newspaper filled with all the cash. And this has always bothered me. He never finds the cash. I don't give a shit that he doesn't find the cash. I get why they would leave that for last because it's as as the audience member, you're supposed to be like, he's going to find it. He's going to find it. And then he never does. And I get that's what he was going for. But my huge issue with this is $40,000 has weight. Yeah. It has weight, people. And when you pick up a newspaper, you'd notice if there's weight in it. You are desperate to get a crime scene cleaned because your mother killed someone. You're not thinking about the weight of things. You're just grabbing shit and tossing it out. But it is the last thing that he finds. He has to go back in. It's a, it's on his last sweep. Mm-hmm. He's about to leave and he's like, oh shit, I should probably check one more time. Just like we all do when we leave a fucking hotel room and then we're always uh-huh. glad that we did. Yeah. But so he goes back and he's like, oh fuck, there's her, uh, her newspaper, right? It's the last thing he's picking up. Why... If he if he had picked it up while he was picking up other things, I would have believed it more. Uh, but because it's the last thing he picks it's up. It's fair. Why doesn't he notice that it's heavy? It's fair. You're it fair. is the one thing. In, well, not the one thing, but it is like a big thing in the movie. And I'm like, this just plain doesn't make it's sense. It's probably also, if he did think about it, he would probably think the less I know about what's going on with her, the better. But that's certainly not the feeling that he shows us on Mm. his face. It's very much, he throws it into the car like it means nothing. And I understand that, except that it would be heavier. What it's doing for the audience, but it kind of betrays the way the character would act. Yes. Yeah, that's fair. So he then pulls the car around as the sun is coming up, and he drives it into the swamp behind the motel. And it sinks and then stops and he gets really nervous and is looking around. Sink your pool! You fucking stupid bastard lake! Sink! And then it sinks the rest of the way and he smiles. Cut to Fairvale a week later. We had a time jump. By the way, Janet Lee, the star, Anthony Perkins was known, but he was not like Janet Lee. She was the star. And they kill her off halfway through the movie, which everyone knows is supposed to be the big shocker. The audiences aren't expecting it. Some people even say that Hitchcock's wife recommended it, which is very possible because apparently they were very, very close collaborators. He would not do anything that he didn't run by her first. According again, according to the movie that I saw. Uh huh. The reason she wanted to get rid of Janet Lee. Oh, is because he thought she thought Hitchcock had the eyes for her? That is, I mean, that's the thing that you always hear, is that Hitchcock was very inappropriate with his blonde actresses. Yes, uh-huh. But he, he did, according to his daughter, according to the screenwriter and everything, he wouldn't do anything unless running it by his wife first. He would ask her, what do you think of this book? And she would say, you should do it. Because his secretary is the one who read a review on the book and said, you should buy out the rights to it. And so he did. He bought it for $9,000 from Robert Block, which today is about $77,000. Not much when you consider how how much the movie actually made. He then notoriously tried to buy up every single copy of the book he could so he could preserve the twist ending. And guys, even if you've seen the movie, the book's actually really good. Maybe not quite as good as the movie, but it's pretty damn good. Yeah, Norman Bates... He's a completely different character in the book, though. Nah, 
not completely. I know. I saw the the documentary that you're talking about that said that. But I've read it. It's not the only one that said that. He's different. He's I feel- old. He's bald. He's fat. Yes. yes. He's more, he's is he less more, likable. That's what I'm saying. Attractive as a person in the film, absolutely. Right. But you want to do that with film because that's whatever everybody's going to be looking at him based on how they see him. Right. But character wise, personality wise, I think that it's pretty close. The movie's pretty on point with the book. Yeah. Um. Maybe. Maybe I would definitely believe you if you were to tell me this Norman Bates in the film is far more likable. Sure. But, I mean, they're practically the same person. Yeah. It's just that Anthony Perkins was attractive and Anthony Perkins played him a little more innocently maybe than he was Likeable, I think, is the thing. Yeah. So anyway. It's basically the same character. It's not the point. The point is, he bought up the rights to the book on the advice of his assistant, but upon the approval of his wife. And so when people say she came up with the idea to kill off Janet Lee, uh, uh, there's uh, there's a case that that could be very true. My mother was the one who really, you know, was in on everything from the very, very beginning. She, uh, he, if when he would find a story that he was anxious to do, he would have her read it. If she didn't think it would make a picture, he didn't touch it. And then she would be the first one to read the treatment uh, and the screenplay. And she was, you know, even in on a lot of the casting, too. And it was wonderful. When she died, Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times said the Hitchcock touch had four hands and two of them were Alma's. The movie cuts to a week later and we're in Fairvale now at Sam's hardware store, Loomis Hardware, which, by the way, yes, his name is Sam Loomis. Sam Loomis is a character in Halloween starring Jamie Lee Curtis. And Billy Loomis. And Billy Loomis from Scream, yes. Yeah. It starts with a scene of Sam in the back room, which is where he lives, of the hardware store writing a letter to Marion. The letter says, Saturday, so this is a week and a day later, Dearest write as always Marion. I'm sitting in this tiny back room, which isn't big enough for both of us, and suddenly it looks big enough for both of us. So what if we're poor and cramped and miserable? At least we'll be happy. If you haven't come to your senses, and still... And that's where it ends. But Lila Crane shows up at the hardware store. This is Marion's sister. Who is an incredible character and then was destroyed by Julianne Moore, and I'm fucking livid about it. Julianne Moore played it much more aggressively. Ugh. And that was that was a choice. Ugh. She did that intentionally. So she just made her an insufferably annoying character whereas in this one she's just Who didn't strong. care who didn't care about anything but getting to answers about her sister. Right, and I There's I, there's value to that. But I feel like she just played like a punk like don't fuck with me. Whereas this lady was like I don't care if you think that a woman should be doing this or not. I'm going after my sister. And it was very much more that instead of fight me, which yeah. is Julianne Moore's interpretation. Vera Miles, who played Lila, uh, she's also in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and The Searchers. So Love she her. was a big famous actress as well, but she doesn't come in until after Janet Lee is gone. She talks about how she does not like 
Hitchcock. She's one of those actresses who does not like Hitchcock, as opposed to Janet Lee, who very much did. And she accuses him of making her look frumpy because she wears that weird outfit, you know, that doesn't show off any of her curves or anything like that. She accuses him of make, forcing her to wear that because he didn't want her to, like, look good. He wanted her to look frumpy. Why? It's I don't know. It's stupid. It's also <laughs> stupid because she's gorgeous. Yeah. Also, we know that Hitchcock lets people do their jobs. Like, yes, he'll make you do a scene over and over again and all of that stuff. But he had a costume lady. She would have been the one to pick the costumes. <laughs> anyway. So she comes in and is like, hey, is Marion here? And he's like, no, why? What happened? And that's when Arbogast shows up. Milton Arbogast, private investigator, shows up and tells the story about how she's wanted for taking $40,000. Lila is like, they're not trying to arrest her. That's why there's a private investigator. They're just trying to find her so they can get the money back before things get really bad. We just want to save her. Arbogast is like, I'm looking forward to, I think... She's here. Somebody always sees a woman with $40,000 and the boyfriend's here. So even if she's not physically in this building, she's in this town somewhere and I will find her. He goes driving around from hostel to hostel to motel to hotel asking questions until he finally almost passes up the Bates Motel because the light's off. But he stops and he tells Norman that and he's like, well, you forget sometimes one by one, you drop the formalities. Which he very quickly... Contradicts. Contradicts. Yes. Uh-huh. We know he's turned off the lights when he was cleaning up the murder scene mm -hmm. and just hadn't turned them back on in a week. Because well, um, he knew that things are hot, right? Now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They have conversation and... <sighs> he very quickly lets things... Go and Arbogast is smarter than him, yeah, and picks up on it faster. But where Arbogast goes wrong is he thinks this is all about the money, yes, and he's like, Oh, she paid you to keep quiet, or you killed her to take the money, right? One but of even, the two, but even that's not the first option, that's like maybe that's what happened. He thinks more likely that, Oh, you're being made a fool of. To which we have the famous line, she may have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. Yeah, he's like, I'm not capable of being fooled, even by a woman. But I'm not a fool. Well, I'm And I'm not capable of being fooled, not even by a woman. Well, this is not a slur on your manhood, I'm uh, sorry. Let's put it this way. She might have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. Oh, your mother talked to her. Can I talk to your mother? Uh, he's like, oh, shit, no, no, you can't talk to my mother. Yeah, and this whole conversation <laughs> is going that way because everything he says is backfiring on yes, him. Yes. Uh, and eventually, Bates says, I think I've talked to you all I want. Uh huh. You're not a cop. If you want to do stuff, you got to come back with a warrant. Goodbye. Yeah, and so Arbogast calls Sam and Lila Which back. Which is what you story. should do, yes. people. Even if you're innocent. Even if you're innocent. Don't answer these people's questions. They have no right to ask you. <laughs> know your rights, people. So Arbogast, as the deputy sheriff will call him later. Mm -hmm. Arbogast. Calls back Sam and Lila at the hardware store and says, I know where she was. She was at this motel called the Bates Motel off the highway. And I feel like there's something missing. He even tells Norman, 
that something's just not gelling. If it ain't gelling, it's not jello. Something's not gelling. If it ain't gelling, it ain't jello. And this ain't gelling. Yeah. I'll tell you the truth. I do mind. You see, if it doesn't gel, it is an aspect. And this ain't gelling. He tells them, I'm going to talk to the mother. I'm going to see if I can't get a hold of, of the mother and get more information out of her. I'll be back in an hour or less. So he goes back to the house. And we get the famous scene. Okay, so he just goes up the stairs. And this fucking shot is the scariest shot in the movie for me. The shower scene, fuck the shower scene. This is the terrifying shot where Arbogast reaches the top of the stairs and the camera is looking down on that balcony area there above the foyer. The mom comes out. And the mom comes like speed walking out with a knife above her head and then slashes across his face. That aerial shot, which we see twice, is incredible. I just, I, I fucking love that. It's set up so well. They just put the camera up in a little cage and hung it from the ceiling. So there wasn't like a, like a person up there filming that, which is also incredible. And then we get a shot of Arbogast right on the face as he's getting slashed. And then he falls down the stairs, which was filmed with projection screen. He was just flailing his arms in front of a projection screen, (laughs) which when they did the remake, Van Sant insisted that they film it the same way, even though William H. Macy was like, Oh, great. We're going to get to improve that shot. (laughs) Van Sant was like, no, we're doing it the same way. And, William H. Macy was like, fuck. (laughs) Poor Macy. Yeah. But it's a very obviously fake, but still iconic shot of him stumbling down the stairs. And then as he gets like four stairs or so from the very bottom, we we get a side shot of him falling the rest of the way. And then the mom comes rushing down the stairs and stabs him to death. Cut to the hardware store hours and hours later. And Lila is something's wrong. He said he'd be back in less than an hour and he's not back. And they argue, and Sam's like, well, tell you what, you stay here, I'll go look for him at the motel. I love her indignance. Am I supposed to just sit here and wait? He's like, yeah. (laughs) Patience doesn't run in my family, Sam. (laughs) And I just love that, because I I feel like it holds more weight than the one with Julianne Moore. Because in 1960, women were not supposed to do that. They were not supposed to speak up for themselves. They were not supposed to say, excuse me. Yeah, they weren't the ones taking action and not taking directions. And that's why she's so fantastic. And she doesn't have to be a bitch about it. And not that I'm saying that Julianne Moore is being a bitch. But Julianne Moore just has this tough girl persona. Like, I'll fight anybody who comes near me. Like, you, it's no, like, whoa. Like, <laughs> like how you imagine like a little girl would be. Yeah. Where I, I feel like you can take... Marion's sister way more Lila, yeah. seriously uh-huh. than you can Julianne Moore because it's just like I'm not going to sit here and wait Sam Patience doesn't run in my family Patience doesn't run in my family Sam I'm going out there guess, an yeah. hour or less Yeah, you probably noticed that with Marion who was trying to get you to marry her Yeah, and I'm not going to sit here and wait yep. and, it, and it's just that confidence is so much better than come at me I'm going to fight you yeah I feel you so Sam goes to the motel. He calls out for Arbogast. He's shouting for him and there's nobody there. We see Norman back at the swamp hearing Sam call for Arbogast. But and he he's doesn't. realizing this is not going to stop. Yeah. Uh, we've made some mistakes here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to try to keep my head down. Yeah. I'm not going to respond to the guy looking for Arbogast. And so he doesn't. Sam gets back and he's like, there's nothing there. But there was an old lady in the house. I saw an old lady sitting on a chair in front of a window. So they decide to go to the local sheriff's deputy. 
because Sam knows him. And they wake him up in the middle of the night and they're like, tell him the whole thing. And the sheriff is like, here's what I think happened. I think Arbogast found out where Marion was, got greedy, called you to slow you down. And went and pursued Marion himself. And Lila makes a stupid argument. No, he said he was going to talk to the mom. It doesn't refute what the sheriff's deputy says. Because the dude was like, yes, he lied to you. That's my point. But she insists. No, that's not what happened. He said he was going to do something. And he disappeared. Something is wrong. And the guy is like, well, here's the problem. You said he was there with his mom. And the Arbogast was going to question the mother. Norman's mom's been dead for 10 years. And deputy's wife is like, yeah, I picked out the dress she was buried in. Periwinkle blue. I hope Norman pick out the dress she was buried in. Periwinkle blue. And I love when the mom says Norman found them in, in bed. Norman found them dead together. In bed. <laughs> yes, because we knew 10 years ago that her lover died. But Norman didn't tell Marion that his mom died then, too. And. It was the first case of murder-suicide in Fairvale history, where she poisoned her lover when she found out he was cheating on her with strychnine, and then poisoned herself, and that that's a really rotten way to go, and it's awful. And then Norman's the one who found them in bed. So he asked the important question, if you saw his mom up in that window, then who's buried in the cemetery? And in the middle of this, Arbogast calls up the motel and is like, Norman, yeah, do you talk to this private detective? Yeah, he left. Okay, cool. And then that's it. What else? So they decide to go and see him. Take matters into their own hands. I think there's another scene at the church, which I was actually really happy that the new movie took out. Yeah. It's totally pointless. Yeah, they follow up the next day still saying they're not satisfied. Yeah. So they end up going to the the motel, and they pretend to be married, and by the way, this is all Lila's idea. Yeah. Because Lila is a smart, confident woman, which is all she needs to fucking be. And Sam is a handsome, strong man who's kind of a doofus. Yes. (laughs) And in the Gus Van Sant version, they certainly make him into more of an idiot. He's a hick in the Gus Van Sant version. Which is so funny, because in the book, like I said, he's kind of a dick. Yeah. Like, not a full-fledged dick, but, like, he full-on, and I think they did a better job of saying this in the new movie, too, he's full-on hitting on Marion's sister in the in the book mm-hmm. when she's there. And, and I think he kind of does in the new one, too. I, I kind of like in this one that he doesn't, actually. Right, because it shows that he has more feelings for Marion, but what I'm telling you is that this guy was a douchebag uh, in the yeah. book. Uh-huh. <laughs> And they very much changed his personality. So they go in, they they go to the motel, they check in, they lie. There's this whole scene about how we're going to pay in cash. I need receipts. That's the first time I've ever seen it. Somebody wants to, uh, somebody doesn't have any luggage and you don't charge them up front. Yeah, Norman <laughs> totally doesn't buy any of their story. Yeah. But that's also causing him to be flustered and make mistakes too. Yes, so... So they go and search her cabin, room one, which Arbogast told them was the room she stayed in. And they find just a little slip of paper. Something was added to or subtracted from $40,000. She was in here. And Sam is like, yeah, but that doesn't prove she was murdered. And Lila's like, Bob, but it does prove that Norman could have known about the money. And like, that's as far as they really get with that thought until Lila's like, 
I got to talk to the mom. I got to talk to this old lady. Even if it's not his mom, I got to talk to the old lady. So Sam distracts Norman, which is a great shot. They come out of room one and they're trying to be all sneaky. And when the dude, Sam, goes to look for Norman, just one doorway over, Norman's already standing there in the doorway just waiting for them. (laughs) He knows they're looking around. He's already kind of- No, he doesn't. He's already kind of grokked because as soon as he comes into view, Norman says, looking for me. Yeah. Like, he knows something's up and- He doesn't know they're searching. But he knows that somebody came looking for Arbogast, and now there are these strangers here, and they're very suspicious. Yeah. So his defenses aren't completely down, but he's still trying to pull off this innocent person persona. And so he has a conversation with Sam. Sam's like, oh, my wife went to sleep. I'm restless. I figured you and I could talk a little bit. Meanwhile, she goes to the house. And I I love it, too, when he's like, I don't know if you should go up there by yourself. And she's like, I can handle a sick old woman. Yeah. I just fucking love her sister. I fucking love Lila, which is why I was so upset with Julianne Moore's personification. So Sam, so Lila goes to the house. She first goes upstairs and finds the mother's room and she looks around and it's really weird. There's the imprint of a body in the bed. So she knows that someone's been there, but she can't find anybody. And I love, I love the attention to detail that Hitchcock does here. Because if you've read the book. Oh, okay. Every single thing that she sees in this house is described in the mo- in the book. It's just that because she's not looking at each thing, you're not picking up on it. But if you've yeah. read the book, it's just like, holy shit, it's like I'm inside the house that he described. Yeah. Every detail is there. They just don't bother to point it out. And I love that. It's like when I watch Rosemary's Baby because they have so much respect for the novel That they put in all this stuff. But if you haven't read the novel, they're not going to point it out to you. So it's literally just there because A, it works for the characterization. And B, if you've read it, you're going to love it. Yeah. I love that respect that they give. And I think that Vera Miles does a really good job here of communicating that she's so fascinated by what she's seeing that she gets lulled into this. I don't want to say a false sense of security, but I guess it is kind of that where she kind of forgets what she's doing because she's so like, she's looking around at everything and she's so fascinated by what she's seeing because their lives are so strange. And in the uh book it's described as like, it's like walking back in time. Yes. And they show that. But again, it's not pointing it out. It's not saying like, look, it's like she's back in, Mm. in, in 1900, even though it is. Yeah. And she, behind her, there's a full length mirror. So when she looks up in a mirror, that's when she remembers, Oh, shit. I'm not supposed to be here. I love her look of fear. Because she gets freaked out. She doesn't realize she's seeing her own full full body reflection. That's happened to me before. Yeah. That's Uh totally fucking happened to me before. I love it. I love how natural it seems. Mm -hmm. How she just looks up and she gasps. It's not even a scream. It's like, (gasps) because at least somebody's there. And then she's like, oh, my God, it's me. (laughs) And then she goes into Norman's room. Which is another thing that you just need to absorb. They don't talk about it at all. All you just need to be paying attention and recognize how this relates to the grander plot. It's a little boy's room. It is a child's room, but it has naughty books. Yes. 
which uh-huh. they, again, they don't even have to tell you what she is looking at. Yes. She takes out a book. She notices that there's no title on it. She opens it up and we just see her eyes get wide. That's it. Uh-huh. You don't know anything else, but you know automatically by looking at that, oh, she's looking at like some yeah. tantric shit right there because that's what he has. And the book tells you that, but you don't even need to know it. Just you can tell by her face. Yes. Prior to this, after we didn't say actually, because the I, I said there are two shots that are from the ceiling of the walkway upstairs. The second shot is after Sam comes looking for Arbogast, and we know that Norman has disposed of Arbogast's body. Sam doesn't find Arbogast, and he goes back to Lila. Norman goes up to his mom's room. And the camera in this really sweet sweeping motion kind of goes upstairs and then takes that position up top. And he's arguing with his mom, I need to hide you. They're going to come looking for you. And she argues with him, no. And he forces her. He grabs her bodily and picks her up out of bed and carries her down. And so that you get that aerial shot of him carrying her across that walkway and then down the stairs. And he puts her in the fruit cellar. You think I'm fruity, huh? No, I will not hide in the fruit cellar. (laughs) You think I'm fruity, huh? So Vera Miles has looked upstairs. There's just these two rooms. And... It's weird as fuck, but she doesn't find the mother. And as she's headed downstairs, rewind a little bit, and Sam and Norman are in the office chatting with the desk in between them. While Sam's getting a little bit more comfy, Norman's getting a little bit more defensive, and because Sam's getting Sam more and more overt. Is basically accusing him yes. of murder and, and like a fucking money. idiot yes he he just totally lets slip and norman because he's so focused on protecting himself is kind of still going along with it and it's very obvious that sam is accusing him of something and then he's like hey where's that girl you're yes. with where is she and then sam kind of pushes him i'm looking for for this girl and Arbogast or whatever. And he forces his way into the parlor where they had dinner and Norman hits him over the head and knocks him out. And he's running up the stairway, up the hill towards the house. That is what Lila sees as she's walking down the stairs out the front window. So she rushes down and hides in the stairway down to the fruit cellar. And she's grabbing onto the rungs of that barrier, the banister there, as he comes in. And I'm like, why are you holding onto that? He's going to see your hands. He has a perfect view. And then she does where she lets go and she realizes what she's done. It's just a little moment. It's in both movies. Yes. I thought it was really cool. And so as he runs upstairs, she goes down into the fruit cellar. She thinks about leaving... And then she's like, fuck, I got to talk to that lady. And so she tries to go downstairs and she goes. And this is the famous, another famous scene. Yes. So she finds a chair facing the wall with an old woman in it. And she grabs her and turns her around only to see that it's a mummified corpse. And she screams and swings her hand back behind her, hitting the light behind her as it swings around, which creates the necessary mood for what's about to happen next. As she's still screaming, in comes Norman Bates, wearing 
one of his mother's dresses and a bad wig and holding the knife above his head. And as he comes charging at her and she is still screaming, Sam comes rushing in and grabs him around the body and by the hand and pulls him down as the wig's falling off and his face is getting all distorted. When he first comes in, he doesn't start charging at her. There's a moment where he walks in and he just has this crazy look on his face. Yeah, he's almost like smiling. Yes, yeah. with a bright, huge grimace and he's got the knife up and then he starts to come at her and that's when Loomis grabs him from behind and his mouth is all like contorting yes, and stuff. Uh-huh. And they they lay on that shot. They just let you watch it happen. Whereas in the new one, he does not stop. There's we a whole fight scene. There's a whole fight scene. Lila participates, though, which is kind of cool. She kicks him in the face. And he, he doesn't really get that moment of contorting of the face and everything. But I, I the original is so much more impactful because all we see is Lila's reaction. Sam doesn't have time to process what's happening. Yeah. Lila, on the other hand, gets to realize the mother's dead. He dresses as her. He's been doing the murders. He's insane. And we get to see all of that realization on her face. Yeah. And it's so much more impactful than a fight scene. Yes. I agree. A fight scene that's completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. So next we get what I like to call the too long denouement. They're at the courthouse where a psychiatrist has just finished interviewing... Who my entire life, I've always been like, he looks like the dude who plays Arbogast. When I was like, like when I first got, saw it a couple times, uh, I, I can thought see it how was a him. Kid, I can see how a kid would think that, but nah, I disagree. Well, I now know, but I'm just like, why didn't you pick an actor that looked more different? <laughs> it took me a long time to realize they were two different people. Yes, so this is a scene that Hitchcock hated. But in order to get the movie made, the studio insisted he include this uh, explanatory scene for the audience members that might be a little slow on the uptake. And they can also explain a few things away. Like, for instance, he was neither transgendered nor a transvestite. He did not think that he was a woman. He had his mother's personality in his brain. That's what that was. He had multiple personalities. It wasn't that he was transgendered and it wasn't that he was a transvestite. One of the people helpfully chimes in, oh, he was a transvestite. That's why he wore the dresses. And the psychiatrist has to be that. No, not exactly. Aren't you the one that said that people were too confused when they saw Silence of the Lambs? And they thought, I agree. So they need this. Clearly, dumb audiences need this explanation. Yeah. It's also related to Ed Gein. This is one of the many movies that's based on Ed Gein, uh, who Richard Block, the guy who wrote the book, was who uh, lived like 20 miles from or something like that. And he killed his mom and others and made basically a mom suit out of the skin of these women and made. uh, A lot of it actually came from corpses already, though. That's an interesting thing that a lot of people I don't think know. Yeah, he was only accused, I think, of two murders. Yeah. I think that's it. He really, yeah, he didn't kill that many people. That's it, as if that's not he, enough. He mostly was a grave robber. Right. Now, I agree. I agree there is value to this, to basically tell the audience, like, okay, this is what's really happening, because there might be that confusion. Especially back then. Right. But it's so long. And it's just this one dude explaining, all right, 
gather around audience. Let me now just wrap everything up and tell you exactly what happened. But it's complex, so it's going to take a long time. And he does. He takes forever to say what really happened. What really happened is when his father died, Norman and his mother, Norma, were very, very, very close. And that all changed when she found a lover. And Norman killed him and his mother in a jealous rage, but couldn't deal with the fact that he was responsible for his mother's death or that his mother was gone. And so in order to relieve himself of this guilt, he recreated his mother's existence in his own mind. And that progressively got worse and worse to where he was acting as her, he was speaking for her, and he would even dress as her. And a key moment that the psychiatrist explains is that like after his mind fractured, he was never fully Norman, but he was occasionally fully the mother. And the mother would take over his personalities at times. So it's not Norman that killed anybody. It was always Norma, his mother. And Norman would stumble upon these grisly scenes and feel responsibility for his mother and clean up. That's why it's a legitimate reaction he has when he stumbles upon Marion in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. It's why he reacts that way even though nobody's watching him because he was legitimately shocked because he had never seen that. He didn't know what his mother had done. Exactly. Whereas in the new one, it feels very much more like I was kind of expecting this to happen, but I'm not supposed to because I'm not supposed to be the mom. So I'm going to, I'm going to do these reactions, but I'm going to do them fast Yeah, because I really knew it was going to happen. And that's a problem. Yes. The movie ends when an officer comes in and says, uh, he says he has a chill. Can I bring him this blanket? And the judge is like, I don't know, psychiatrist, can we? And the psychiatrist, yeah, go ahead. So he takes him the blanket and she, Norma, says, thank you. Thank you. And we're left in the room with Norman Bates thinking with his mother's voice because the psychiatrist reveals Norman's gone at this point. He's completely snapped and he is just Norma. And she gives this little speech about how she had to tell them all of this. She had to tell them this fake story about how Norman killed me and recreated me in his mind and all this stuff. They need to see that I am harmless, that I wouldn't hurt a fly. I had to throw my son under the bus. That's what she says. Yeah, she says it's sad when a mother has to say the words that condemn her own son. Yes. She's blaming it all on Norman. That's my point. And a fly lands on Norman's hand, and she thinks, see, I won't even swat that fly. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see, and they'll know, and they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. And as it ends, he looks up with this grin because he's looking down at the fly. He looks up with this grin like I've got them all fooled. Mm -hmm. And as the scene fades away, also the mother's face fades in over the top of his. Mm -hmm. It fades into a shot of them winching out the car from the swamp and then credits. Now, According to the sequel... Lila and Sam would go on to get married and have a daughter. 
and Sam is dead by the time Psycho 2 happens. So I actually really liked FYI. Psycho 2. We never saw any of the other ones, but I actually really liked it. No, yeah. Lila has a completely different role, and it's still played by Vera Miles. That's the movie, Kelsey, Lightning Round. I actually don't have much to say. I have a few things. For Lightning Round, I think we've done a really good job of covering it. I think this is an outstanding film, and... While I won't say that the new one is an absolute piece of garbage, I don't understand why they made it. We'll get into that. I know. What I'm just saying is it's such a good movie. I don't think it ever needs to be touched again. Yeah. I think we should just preserve it, and I think we should just keep it as something that people should see. Maybe do a re-release of it or something. Yeah. We said the movie is based on Ed Gein. It's not the only one. Silence of the Lambs, another book turned into movie, based on Ed Gein, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, etc. That's one thing. Also, in Halloween, H2O, Janet Lee is in that movie. She plays... Somebody's assistant or something. Jamie Lee Curtis's assistant. So she's the assistant to her real-life daughter. And she drove a car that is designed... It's the same car, not the same exact car, but the same model of car of the one that she drove in this movie. And then they play the psycho theme a little bit when that when we see the car. This is, of course, because John Carpenter was a big fan of Psycho. And when he originally cast Jamie Lee Curtis in the first movie, he was super jazzed because (laughs) it was the daughter of the woman from Psycho. Like he was so jazzed about that. There are three different voices that play Norma Bates. Oh, that is something I do want to talk about. Paul Jasmine, Virginia Gregg, and Jeanette Nolan. When there's that scream and it seems almost uncanny when she discovers the old woman, it's because that's not all Lila. And she her mouth starts closing, but the scream still goes on. That is Jeanette Nolan, who does part of the voice of Norma Bates, who she is screaming at the same time. But the one for the last speech is Virginia Gregg. That's played by Virginia Gregg, just the one. I used to think it was a big mistake to not do something to make it seem more like his voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But after seeing the new one, where if I had to guess, I'd say that kind of obviously a fake voice in that one yeah it seems like he did it vince vaughn did it i don't think that's the case but i think it is designed to sound like he could have done it so that i didn't really like that so i was like maybe they did make the right choice but here's the thing i want to know what would it sound like if he really was doing his mother's voice so that's i think something i always wondered about yeah. What would it sound like if he really did do her voice? Rose Marie is uncredited as the voice of Norma Bates. Endgame just came out. Avengers Endgame just came out. And everyone's talking about spoiler culture and how it's awful on both sides. People who spoil things on purpose or who are a little bit too loose-lipped when talking about something that not everyone has had a chance to see. But then on the other side, people that are overly sensitive and just saying the movie is three hours long is a spoiler. Is anyone saying that? Yes. Yes. People are way too fucking sensitive. But then also, on the other hand, some people are too loose-lipped. But that's why I call it spoiler culture, is film culture and fandom has become 
this weird obsession with purity going into it, which I can definitely see the appeal of, but it's really starting to get like caustic in the environment. People are demanding that they know nothing. I know what the full title is. Spoiler! (laughs) Anyway, that kind of started here with Psycho. First of all, we talked about how Hitchcock tried to buy up every bit of the novels that he could find in order to prevent people from reading it. So Hold on. The Bad Seed has a whole thing at the end of the film explicitly asking the audience to not share the ending. Yeah, that's one aspect of it. So what I'm saying is, is like, spoiler culture was around before this. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. Okay. It's part of it. You're right. What I mean to say is... That ties into Hitchcock saying, don't spoil this for other people. And it ties into the Russo brothers telling people, don't spoil the endgame. Hashtag don't spoil the endgame, right? (laughs) Like, it's a whole big thing. It's nothing new. But Hitchcock went one step further with his obsession of preserving the twist. He bought up all the copies of the book that he could find, that he could get his hands on, so people wouldn't just casually stumble upon it and know the twist already. He also wrote into theater manager's contracts when he sold them the rights to play the film in their theaters that nobody would be allowed in the theater after it started. Like it was actually a legally binding contract that they were not allowed to let anybody in late. There were standees in every theater of how Alfred Hitchcock saying, do not show up late because you will not be allowed in upon pain of death from the managers, like the managers would would be killed if they let anybody in. Do not come in through the ventilation shafts or anything like that. He teased the fact that you shouldn't spoil it as marketing, as opposed to with Bad Seed, where it just didn't want to spoil it because that would ruin the experience. Mm -hmm. Hitchcock turned not spoiling it into the intrigue that would get people interested in it. And they were people would talk about how it wasn't supposed to be spoiled. And you had to see the whole thing from the beginning. Especially since this is a time when you would just stumble into a movie halfway through or whatever. Or try to sneak in and go theater hopping and stuff. And you didn't care that you weren't seeing a movie from the very beginning. Because that's not what seeing a movie was about. And this was like, no, you need to get your ass in that seat and watch from the very beginning. Otherwise, you will not be able to appreciate the film. <laughs> I thought that was uh, pretty neat. It said, you must see Psycho from the very beginning. No one, not even the president of the United States, not the theater manager's brother, not even the Queen of England, God bless her, will be allowed into the theater after the beginning of each showing of Psycho. (laughs) This is to allow you to enjoy Psycho more. By the way, after you see the film, please do not give away the ending. This is the bad seed part. It's the only one we have. Which I thought was was pretty cute. And then there would there would be lines of people showing up before the movie started. Yeah, I love waiting to get pictures in. Pictures of huge lines. Yeah, because people were sure to get there before it started. I just thought that that was pretty interesting. And that's the last thing I have written down, at least about Psycho. So, Kelsey, yes, what do you think the movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? Hundred ninety-seven percent. There you go. That means there are some people that didn't like this movie. Probably just to be. Contrarian. Yeah. Infamous for its shower scene, but immortal for its contribution to the horror genre. Because Psycho was filmed with tact, grace, and art, Hitchcock didn't just create modern horror, he validated it. Metacritic of 97, obviously no cinema score, even for its re-releases. 
it came out later on in that same decade, like 67, 68, 69, something like that. It had a very popular re-release in theaters again because people were so excited about the opportunity to see it again. Again, this is a time when you just didn't have home video. So if you (laughs) wanted to see a movie again, they had to re-release it. It was like theater. If you didn't see it in its original run, you just didn't fucking see it. Mm -hmm. Um, But then eventually it was picked up on television and shown on like late night horror movie hours where it got another resurgence. And so it's basically had just an incredible lifespan since 1960, where it was kind of never out of the cultural consciousness, even though it's back in the 60s. First of all, overrated or underrated? I mean, it's pretty much. But what would you give it? I'm going to give it. A 96. Really? Mm-hmm. Why is that? It's not getting a 100, mostly because I think that he could have done some editing. I think the driving scenes are a little too long. I think the scene where she's getting ready to go, when she's getting the car, when she's talking to the cop, I think a lot of that could have been shortened. I understand what he was trying to do. He wanted you to think this is the main character. This is who you're paying attention to and then take that away and make. Well, and this is the main plot is her trying to get away with the money. But that's not it either. But that's not it. And I think it it's just a little bit of too slow of a beginning. That's why it's not getting those extra four percent. I can see why you would think that. I think that's a very valid interpretation. I personally disagree because I think especially with the music and everything, that title theme, it just pulls you through that all of that. bothers me. It bothers me that he had to rely on the music to pull it through. Well. It's very good. Do you not like the medium of cinema? Because that's what movies are. Like, if you take out the music, it's very, very obvious that that's what you're doing. So, like, the soundtrack, the score is an integral part of a film. Are you saying he shouldn't have a score? No, not even a little bit. Well, so what's your point? I'm saying it should be cohesive. It shouldn't be that one part of it is. No, I disagree. I think my interest in what she was doing and her dealing with the cop and her stress about what people are thinking of her back home and trying to get through this transaction as quick as she can, trying not to deal with 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 Norman Bates, but actually kind of liking him and then redeeming herself like that's all really important in that I said before that. I'm in a way I'm glad that she didn't get those extra 15 miles and make it to Fairvale because something wouldn't have happened. What what wouldn't have happened is she wouldn't have been had an opportunity to redeem herself, not necessarily in the eyes of others, but internally to herself. She was like, "No, this is not the person that I am. I'm going to go back and it's going to fucking suck, but I'm going to make this better because I'm not willing to sacrifice myself for that." That's a moment that she gets from talking to Norman. Now, She is ultimately murdered and she doesn't have the opportunity to act on that. But that doesn't stop the fact that she is redeemed in her own eyes. She has changed herself. And that happens as a result of not making it to Fairvale. But it's also the conclusion of a character arc that begins in Phoenix and travels all the way throughout. I... I love that. And I think, yes, the the soundtrack, the score itself does a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to carrying you through that. But not all the lifting. For me personally, that's all I'm saying. For me personally, I love it. What I realize I love in movies, and I think a lot of the reason why I like like 70s era films so much, is I love tension. 
not necessarily fear, but tension. And all sorts of movies can do that. Comedies can 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 make humor out of tension. There, there's drama to tension. There's obviously fear involved in tension. And the first portion of this movie is all about that tension that sort of drags you along with it. And it's something that film kind of lost for the most part in the decades following the 70s and I think is getting it back with movies like Hereditary and other movies that know how to just linger and rely on the fact that the tension that they're building is going to carry the audience through that scene. I really, really appreciate that. I'm going to give this movie a 100. Not because it's perfect. I've said it before. 100 doesn't mean perfect. It's just the highest esteem that I can give to a movie. My highest recommendation, my highest consideration. I don't think that movies get better than this. I think anything beyond this, it comes down to personal preference, which is why I like Vertigo more than I like Psycho. It's just a personal preference. That's nuts to me. Sorry. I love Vertigo. Sorry. I don't think Vertigo is better than Psycho. Maybe it's because I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it's so close to 100 for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's not to say that I think you're bad-mouthing the movie or anything like that. I absolutely do not. <laughs> this uh, might be your highest rating so far this year? No. Um, I said might. I'm looking it up. Poltergeist. You gave a 99 to Poltergeist. I give Rosemary's Baby 100? Probably, but that was last year. I'm not looking at last year's scores. Very, very good, which begs the question, why bother remaking it? Which we will get into in a second. Before we get into our next movie, Kelsey, Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. What is the amount of money Marion Crane steals at the beginning of 1960s Psycho? $40,000. That's correct! (laughs) Were we watching something else and they said $40,000 was the amount? I feel like, yeah. All right, Kelsey. What is the name... Of the pet cat resurrected in Reanimator, 1985. Oh, you tricked me. I thought it was going to be church. Nope. Duh. <laughs> Cat's Shit. This, I knew this was going to be a hard one, but it was a Reanimator question. I couldn't pass it up. Cat dead details later. It's either a really ordinary name or it's like a Mr. Something. I feel like it's either Ned or like Mr. Fluff or something. (laughs) Is it? It's Rufus. Rufus. I fucked that up. George Carlin from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. (laughs) Rufus! All right. Well, it is a double feature, so... The late night double feature. We're going to talk about the remake to 1960s Psycho with 1998's Psycho. Working off literally the same exact screenplay by Joseph Stefano based on the Robert Block novel. Hilariously, when Robert Forster received the script and he saw that it was the original movie script, he thought they had sent him the original in error. Gus Van Sant came to him himself and said, no, no, we're working off the original script. 
I say Gus Van Sant because he is the director of the movie and it stars Vince Vaughn, Anne Heche, Julianne Moore, Viggo Mortensen, William H. Macy, Robert Forster, Philip Baker Hall, Rita Wilson, and James Remar. Lots of people in this movie. Well, I mean, who wouldn't want to be in the Psycho remake? Yeah. I know specifically William H. Macy was really excited and then was really disappointed by what it ended up being. I bet. Because he was asking a similar question, fucking why? (laughs) (laughs) So That's not to say that this movie is god-awful. This is definitely not a zero. I actually thought they actually did a lot within the framework of the original. Yes. But ultimately the question is why and a lot of the things that they changed were not good. And then it was like, but there were other things that you could have improved upon, like William H. Macy's scene, but no. Yeah, so... Still, though, what they were able to do within a script that had already been made and make it their own, that's kind of impressive. Yeah. I think, to your point, the thing is, I don't I don't hate it. Right. But, okay, so... Gus Van Sant apparently brought a copy of the original Psycho on DVD to the set where they used it as reference. And things that were done incorrectly in the original, he would do again in this one on purpose. Such as, how did they get into room one without the key? When it was needed to get into there before, and he locked it. That was a mistake in the original. They kept it in for this remake. Because they were literally going off the original. Also, (laughs) when asked why he did the movie in the way he did, almost but not quite shot for shot, he said, so no one else would have to. It's almost like he was jumping on a grenade, which is really weird why he would elect to do that. He said about it, if I hold a camera, even if it's in the same place, it will magically take on the character. Our psycho showed you can't really appropriate, or you can, but it's not going to be the same thing. Ty West, who's a director that we've liked in the past, is actually, he likes the remake because he thinks it's an experimentation and a commentary on film and film quality. He says that if you remake it exactly and it is somehow worse or derided, now we know that there's nothing about the com- the composition of the film that makes us like it. Because if they're composed the exact same way and we like one but not the other, then what is that magic quality to film commentary? That's why it's like it's it's an experimentation. It's almost avant-garde in that way. But no, this was a commercial product released to mass audiences. Mm-hmm. It is not fucking avant-garde. Do you think Michael Henneke refutes. Yeah, see, that saying? that's what it is. It is not, you pointed this out earlier, it is not a shot for shot in the same way that Michael Haneke reshot Funny Games. It There are variations and differences, but for the most part, it, it stays extremely faithful. And what I think is a good metaphor for this movie is the very first thing you see is a recreation of the original credit sequence done by Saul Bass. But- Difference slightly in a weird, almost neon green. So I think it's a it's a perfect metaphor 
because I was blinded by those titles. It's it's almost an exact replica of the original, but slightly different, as you say, and in color. And somehow, as a result of that, I'm offended by it in a way. And so that's kind of a perfect metaphor that transfers to the entire film as a whole and not just the opening credits. Should people watch this movie, Kelsey? I'm going to say you do not have to. Yeah, absolutely not. There's nothing here that's different from the original that's worth watching an hour and 45 minute movie. If you have time to kill, you're not going to be worse off for it is the thing. But it's not nearly as bad as I remembered it being. Right. And we waited, I think, two days in between watching the original and watching this one. I think that was the right way to go. Wait a little bit so you remember the story, but not every last little detail. You should not watch these one right after the other in a classic double feature format. (laughs) All right. Well, you can take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk likely very briefly about 1998's Psycho. Oh, my boy's best friend is his mother. She just, uh, she just goes a little mad sometimes. <laughs> mother! Oh, God! Mother! Psycho. Rated R. Okay, we're not going to go over the plot of 1998 Psycho 2. Psycho 2? Psycho. Uh, 1998 Psycho because it is literally the same thing. Like we mentioned, they use the same exact shooting script. So, our conversation about 98 Psycho is going to be basically one long lightning round where we just jump from topic to topic, whatever we feel like talking about. So, Kelsey, do you want to get us started? I was, so I've seen this before. Yeah, I saw it in theaters. I did not see it in theaters, but I saw it a long time ago. I certainly did not see the entire thing until after I'd seen the entire thing of the original. It was kind of the same thing. It was kind of like on TV, and I'd catch moments of it. Mm -hmm. When I finally sat down and watched it, I don't think that was until, like, college. Mm -hmm. I had totally forgotten that Aragon was in this. Yes. Fucking forgot his name. (laughs) Vigo Mortensen. Vigo Mortensen. And whenever I hear Vigo, I automatically think of Ghostbusters too. Yes. But yeah, Aragon is in this playing Sam Loomis as if he were this stupid hick. Right, yeah. He chose a very simpleton persona. I want to know why he's Southern. (laughs) If he's lived his whole life in California. Why? Apparently, Vigo Mortensen is under the impression that if you live in a small town in California, you have a... a uh, listen, Burbank. Accent. Not Burbank. Listen, Central California <laughs> is a whole lot of nothing. And there's some... Uh, there's some people in that area. Some perfectly good people and some others that... Are just like, there's some real white trash in Central California. (laughs) 
But not you, listener, who's from Central California. You're one of the good ones. You sound like Trump right now. (laughs) Some people are bad. There are good people on both sides. (laughs) I do not share Chris's looking down upon the people of Central California. I don't look down on them. For I see that there are shitty people in every area of the world. (laughs) Anyway, you shouldn't have a southern accent. It's dumb. (laughs) Wear a cowboy hat. The we get to see his ass again. He is so skinny. Yeah. Well, have, you've seen Eastern Promises, haven't you? Years ago. He has a naked fight scene. I kind of remember that because you guys were making such a big deal about it. But for, I don't really remember much about it outside of that. It's a great scene. It's brutal. What's his it called dick's again? all flopping around. Eastern Promises. That's right. I don't even remember what it was. Like. Oh man, he gets this. He, he there's this knife that he's holding down. They're both struggling over on the floor, pointed straight up, and he just shoves this guy's head right down on it. Whew. And they're all naked, or at least he is, because <laughs> he was in a sauna. He's in a bathhouse or whatever. <laughs> anyway, not the point. He is very very skinny. Yeah. Okay. So the intro is sl- very slightly different, which. If I were sitting down to watch this for the first time, I might be excited about that. I'd be like, ooh, it's going to be like the original, but with, ooh, subtle differences. Yeah, well, it's eye-stabbingly green. <laughs> like, when you see that, when you see the Saul Bass intro from the original, and it's in black and white, and you think to yourself, I wonder what this would look like if it was in color. Is eye-stabbingly green the color that immediately comes to mind. I wasn't nearly as offended by it. Is there green that you see anywhere in this movie? I think they're going for a 60s look, babe. Well, then, I mean, even avocado green wasn't until like the 70s and the into 70s. the 80s. I'm talking about bright neon colors from the 60s. I still don't see it. I still don't see it. Let's talk about Gus Van Sant a little bit. Gus Van Sant. You going to do any directing there? Gus, ah, you got it. So, action, Gus, or? Jesus, Ben, I said I'm busy. Busy. No, I just want to talk about his cinema verite. No, that's not right. His his CV. Care to explain to our listeners who don't know what that means, what that means? A CV is curriculum vitae. It, It means course of life. It's basically what he's done. What's on his... Resume, I guess you could say, even though they're kind of different things. He's done some great things. He, prior to this, he directed Drugstore Cowboy, uh, My Own Private Idaho. Which I've always wanted to see and never seen. And Goodwill Hunting. Wait, he hadn't done my favorite one by Ghost Van Sant yet? Finding Forrester? No. What? He hadn't done the one with Joaquin Phoenix and Tom Cruise's ex-wife, Nicole Kidman. To Die For? Yes. Yes. He had done that. He had done that. Okay. After To Die For is Goodwill Hunting. So anyway. his repertoire was pretty good at this point. Right. So he did Goodwill Hunting, and he went from that to a Hanson video. Oh, no. To this. Subsequently, I think we can all agree that Gus was going through a little bit of a <laughs> no, okay. career crisis. No, he did tons of music videos. 
tons of music videos for people like David Bowie and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Elton John. Like, he was a music video director in between movies. And he did that all the way up until now. Like, he's just done tons of music videos for people. But after this, he directed Finding Forrester, Milk, and more recently, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, which is another Joaquin Phoenix movie that came out last year, which got okay reviews. So that is who Gus Van Sant is. This is the guy who thought, well, if I make it, no one else will have to. <laughs> I got news for you, Gus. Nobody needed to in the first place. More importantly, talking about who made this movie, more importantly than Gus Van Sant, Bernard Herrmann's score was remade. They didn't use the actual score from the original. They recorded a new one, which was adapted by Steve Bartek and Danny Elfman. And the little trivia here is that they used vintage microphones for the recording. (laughs) Let's talk about the choice of Marion, shall we? Anne Heche. If you were to put Anne Heche next to Janet Leigh, who would you think was the more attractive one? Oh, well, definitely Janet Leigh. But uh, listen, okay, I, I... Not that subjective by the way beauty (laughs) should be the determiner of who gets this role but the character is supposed to be a slightly older for the time beauty and Anne Heche had this uncommon beauty about her that was she was very popular at the time for being a little skinny a little weird she cut off all of her hair she around this time she was in a relationship with Ellen DeGeneres very famously because nobody thought she was gay but she is bisexual. Step up there, Ellen. A good step up with what's her name <laughs> from Anne Heche to Portia de Rossi. Yes, and they've been together for a very long time with risks of breaking up or whatever. But no, um, aren't we always? Isn't everyone always at the risk of breaking up? This is bullshit. (laughs) Either you do or you don't. Why does the public need to know about every time you have a fight? Yeah, there you go. That's a good point. Yes, so she was selected for this part. Almost, I like, part of it is almost like, and nobody, nobody is fooled by the fact that they kill off the main character in the movie anymore, right? So it's not like you would hire like a Drew Barrymore in the beginning of Scream and be surprised when she dies out in the first segment. So that's not what you're going for in a remake. I guess maybe it's just to be intriguing because Anne Heche is sort of interesting, but she's also very cold and like, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange choice. Yes. Curious. Curious. I'm very proud of myself for that. I'm I'm proud of you too, sweetie. Okay, so let's talk about some of the things that they probably should have changed. Okay. For example, when she's having sex with this guy, why are they in a hotel? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense in this In the 60s, yeah, yeah, you didn't want to bring men back to your house if you were a single lady. It's a bad idea. In 1998, nobody gave a shit. Right. I agree. Why are you wasting money on a hotel where you can hear other people shouting yes, having sex? Which is another thing they do. Yes. They they point out that it's a 
it's a sex hotel. Yeah, it's supposed to be a hotel where you pay to have sex. Now, you either go there because you have a prostitute. Or, or you're having an affair. You're having an affair. Which neither of them are. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway. So they're both very different. And that was something I kind of enjoyed was seeing the differences within the the very stiff confines of the original. So Loomis is acting way more in love with Marion than he did in the original and way more than in the in the book. Yeah. Way, way more. She is being more playful with him as opposed to Janet Lee, who was much more irritated like at the situation. Up. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that makes sense for the time, right? Because in 1998, maybe 30 wasn't the best time to be single, but it still was nothing like it was in 1960. Yeah. I hated her outfits. Like, a lot. Yeah. It was that late 90s kind of 60s flower power look. I distinctly remember most of my wardrobe looking like that. And she busts out a parasol. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, my God. And her sunglasses. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I was 12. I was, like, no, 98. I was... 11. 11? I was 11. So, like, yeah, it makes sense that my disgusting, ugly wardrobe was everything (laughs) that late 90s should be. But her? Yeah. Give her a better wardrobe. I get it. It was like, ooh, the 60s are back, but in this weird 90s way. Let's have her dress that way. But it looked awful. Looked very forced, Uh in my opinion. Why did her friend who she, not friend, but like her co-worker was still talking about tranquilizers? Yeah. In 1998, doctors were giving out tranquilizers to women? No! Well, I mean, kind of like candy, it was a, a different sort of scenario. The guy who is buying the house it plays it a lot better, I think, in that, not, I don't want to say better, a lot less creepy. Well... Okay, He's so, not nearly as, like... Smarmy. Come on, No, baby. but he's like, he's like, I'm a secret murderer, though. He's that kind of creepy. What? You know, he's, like, all super tanned and leather-faced and, like... He's old. Right, but he's like, an, he's like an old man who will do literally anything to get what he wants. And not in the way that's like, I throw money at my problems because I really like having a good time. If you also are interested in having a good time, you can join me, which if is how he was in the first one. interested. Right, yes, that's that how it was in the, the first one. not the way that he put it. No, it absolutely was. I buy off my problems. Do you have any problems I can buy off? It was an invitation and that's it. In this, it's like, I will do anything to get what I want. Even murder people is the sort of impression that I got. No, from this guy. I didn't get that. I am a living skeleton with 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 leather stretched over it. I got news for you, babe. We're gonna get old too. Yes, no, but it's the it's not the fact that he's old. It's the fact that the way he's he plays it is very like. I wouldn't say it's I mean, it's a little bit sinister. He's not sinister at all in the original one until we hear the voiceover. But that's just in Marion's head. In this one, like you see him and he's like, like, what's you're weird, man. <laughs> like he, he would make me uncomfortable, which is funny because the first guy would make you uncomfortable. Yeah. And I totally see how that's possible. <laughs> I want you to see how it's possible that I would feel uncomfortable by this guy. I do. Okay. <laughs> 
I loved that they at least updated the amount of money because that would have been ludicrous if they hadn't. So instead of it being 40,000, it's 400,000. Yeah. Much more believable. In this version, she doesn't go from white to black. She goes from pink to green, which I think is supposed to be like pink is like little girlish and then green is like money and sex. Yeah. So I see that. I liked that. That was fine. She seems way more excited about being a bad girl. Yes, her smile was too much. We talked about the grin that Janet Lee gets when she's thinking about everyone's reaction. She's worried, and that slowly evolves into, you know what, maybe I am a bad girl. In this, she's like, has this huge smile on her face, like, <laughs> it's like, well, that's too much, Anne Hayes. Yeah, she seems way more excited about it than yeah. Janet did. I love the guy they picked for the cop. I. I would have picked that actor. Uh, James Remar. Yeah, he was perfect. He's a perfect choice. What do we know him from? He's the dad from, most likely you know him as the dad from Dexter. The one who gave Dexter his code. But I do know him from something else, but Um, yes. He's Ajax from the Warriors. Warriors. Never seen it. You've never seen the Warriors? I've told you that multiple times. And I must be surprised every single time. He's in... Drugstore Cowboy. That's a Gus Van Sant film. I know, because you said that earlier. I know. White Fang, Fatal Instinct. That's the comedy version of Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction. Miracle on 34th Street, the 94 remake. As who? Jack Duff. One of the bad guys, yes. I do remember him in that. Mm-hmm. Boys on the Side, The Phantom. I've seen that movie, but I don't remember anything about it. He's Raiden in Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Not the original Mortal Kombat. Haven't seen it. Hellraiser Inferno from 2000, <laughs> but I don't think we got that far. <laughs> okay, but either way, I totally would have picked him. He looks just like the original guy, and he does such a good job. Oh, I know where you know him from. Wow. He's Richard Wright in Sex in the City. He's Richard. Mm-hmm. He's in 12 episodes of Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. Pineapple Express. I don't remember him in that, but I'm sure he's in it. General Bratt in, in Pineapple Express. Surely he's a general in X-Men First Class. Oh, he's he's Frank Gordon in Gotham. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, when she's talking to the cop, though. Yeah. I didn't like that she... So I kind of don't like any of her changes. I don't like that she played more angry with the cop than scared of the cop. Yeah. She's more annoyed and angry that he's talking to her than she is like, oh my god, he could find out that I stole all this money. Yeah. It's more like, hey, fuck you, dude. I fell asleep on the side of the road. What's your problem? Which, isn't that kind of illegal? I don't think it was back in 1960, yeah, I but I think it is now, now yeah. to, to, fall, to sleep on the side of the freeway, which is stupid. I'd rather you get into a car accident yeah, uh-huh. than pull over and Especially take a when nap. you're in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I did like that when they were shooting her, she's taking the, the money out of the bag. I liked it better in the new one because in the original, it's like she turns and she's super concerned that he's going to see the money. And it's like, he's not, he's not going to see it. Not going to see it. And I like that she just is like, she kind of looks and then just kind of pushes it over the side. It's not like a, I must take this out 
cover it and look while I'm doing it and put it down there. Because that seemed really forced when she did it, when Janet Lee did it. Mm -hmm. But in this one, it seems way more natural. She just kind of pushes it out to the side. It's a little worrisome, not that big of a deal. I felt that California Charlie was way more offended by her her actions than he was confused. You think? Yeah, he seemed more like, oh. No, I, I thought it was more like, no, there's something fishy going on here. And in both cases, it's like, why would he, like, you have the power to control the speed of this transaction. You can slow it down. I also liked that they updated the money for the car, of course. It went from 400 to 4,000. Yeah. Which it should have 700 done. to 4,000, yeah. Oh, it did? Mm-hmm. Okay. They changed the name of the music store that her sister worked at? Yeah. It went from, like, Melody Makers to uh, Hardcore Vinyl. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that is where Julianne Moore works. So just put those things together. And there's also this weird, with Julianne Moore, there's this weird obsession with her having her headphones in all the time. Oh, and they're going to the motel or they're going to talk to the sheriff's deputy or something like that. And they felt the need to extend the scene for her to say, wait, let me get my Walkman. And then the scene ends. And it's like, why was that even necessary? Julianne Moore is a method actress. And she said, I work in a music store. Uh Uh-huh. And therefore, my main motivation in life is to listen to music. So Gus... I must insist that at this point, I specifically stop and go for my Walkman. Right. I mean, I guess... I hope that's how that conversation I guess Vera Miles doesn't look like she works in a record store or anything like that, but she's probably working for a record company, Mm -hmm. not a store. So it's weird that they decided she just worked at a record store in this. I don't know. I feel like it was a record store in the first one, but I don't remember. I called her sister, Mr. Larry, where she works. The Music Maker's Music Store, you know. I hated that he stuck with... I hate that Gus stayed, stayed with the idea that she's too overwhelmed and therefore needs to pull over. Because here's the thing. In black and white, when you're pouring water onto the the um, car, mm-hmm. it looks natural because we can't tell. Yeah. When you do it in color... It looks like there's a bucket of water right above her and it's just pouring down. Yeah. It looks so bad. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, Gus, come on. Make it more that she's falling asleep at the wheel. Make it more that she's got all these ideas swimming around in her head and she starts to get really upset. Do something else. Don't make it about water, especially if you're not going to do anything with the water special effects so that it looks real. Yeah. Yeah. Really bothered me. (laughs) And they took out the house. Now, this I understand. They did it because in the 60s, it would make more sense that your house was Victorian age. And in this one, it was like, well, this was probably built in like the 80s. So let's make it look more like an 80s home. I disagree. What do you mean? I don't think it looked all that different. Oh, it looked totally different. Just in color. The one in the original is tall and skinny and Victorian. The one in the new one is fat and, like, brick and mortar, and it does not look like it at all. Eh, I disagree. Bothered me. I didn't get that indication at all. Okay, so now let's talk about Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn, who I actually wrote down, Vince Vaughn is actually doing really well. Then came the parlor scene. Yeah. Not even 
close to the same sort of impossible combination that the original gets of comfort and tension at the same time, which should be impossible. Mm-hmm. But the original pulls it off. This mm-hmm. one, you don't have that at all. It's just uncomfortable the whole time and scary and yeah. imposing, which it shouldn't be. As Chris said, it's supposed to be a juxtaposition of feeling comfortable and feeling uneasy at the same time. Yeah. Which, honestly, I'm pretty sure we've all met creepers in our lives. Yeah. And we know that feeling. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, this person hasn't done anything to that outwardly should be giving me pause, but there's just something going on here that does not feel natural. Whereas in this... I would walk in and be like, you're a murderer and I'm going to get the fuck yeah. out of here. And Roger- Which is essentially how Anne Heche pr- presents herself, yeah. except she doesn't get the fuck out of there. And, and so it doesn't tell that story of her sort of realizing what she's done and what her options are and how she wants to go back and make things better. You don't get that same arc throughout this conversation. It almost seems like she changes her mind because the script tells her to, mm-hmm. um, which is a little weird. Mm-hmm. In his review, Roger Ebert, he gave it a one and a half stars. Ouch. In his review, he talks about how Vince Vaughn was just the wrong person for this role. And and how, like, he has his nervous laughter, which feels like he read, laugh nervously, and then he did it. Whereas with Anthony Perkins, it feels like when he giggles or chuckles, it's almost involuntary. And Vince Vaughn doesn't give that sense at all. It's like, now is the time where I laugh nervously. <laughs> I didn't know the Salvation Army was having a sale. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you're right in your assessment that in the very first scene when we first meet him, uh-huh. I was blown away. He's great. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, I remember him being terrible. It just doesn't maintain that quality. Yeah, so I would be really curious to see when they shot those scenes uh-huh. to see which came first. To see if it took him if it just took him longer as an actor to get into that headspace. Maybe. Or if perhaps he just can't pull off a duality within a person. Because when we first meet him, we don't see that duality. When we mm-hmm. first meet him, we just meet a nervous Kind of uncomfortable dude. Yeah. And he plays it so good, and he's super, like, childish, but nice, but, like, you know, but I don't think he knows how to play it split. I have all of that, but I also have murderous, crazy intent inside. Yeah. Because for him, these are, like, two completely separate characters almost, Mm -hmm. and that's not what you're looking for in this character or in this story, which is about dualities, right? So when you have... Norman Bates, he's he's two p- sort of personalities in the same body, two different sorts of capabilities merged together. And sometimes one is revealed more than the other. But in this version, it's, hey, here's the murderer Norman, and here's the nervous Norman. Mm-hmm. And they're two separate characters, which isn't as effective. Not at all. I mean, this kind of harkens back to what I said about the first one. I don't want to say that Anthony Perkins is not a good actor. In fact, I don't even know, other than Psycho 2, I don't know if I've ever seen anything else that he's been in. And in Psycho 2, he's not nearly as good. But, I mean, we didn't have Hitchcock doing it. So, like, I don't want to try and say that Anthony Perkins wasn't a good actor. But what has been said about him in the past, that living a double life every day of his life probably really helped him understand who Norman was, and how you have to try and hold things back, and occasionally things slip out. Yeah. 
I didn't mention this when we were talking about Vigo Mortensen, but this is his second Alfred Hitchcock remake he's been in. Vigo? Yes. What else was he in? The same year, he was in A Perfect Murder, which is a remake of Dial M for Murder. Robert Forster was in, also the same year, another Alfred Hitchcock remake, Rear Window, a made-for-TV version of Rear Window. So there were three Alfred Hitchcock remakes all in this one year. Fuck me. Yeah. Really don't want to do a fucking made-for-TV movie remake of Rear Window, which in my opinion is Hitchcock's best movie. No, we're doing Rear Window with Disturbia, obviously. Oh, we are? We're not going to do the remake? (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) What about William H. Macy? This hurts. This really hurts. I do not want to say anything bad about Macy because I fucking love him as an actor. But I gotta. I'm sorry, Macy. I gotta be honest. Well, he maybe deserves it. For being a cheat. Him and his wife. (laughs) Yes, that too. But generally, I think William H. Macy is a fantastic actor. But in this, I feel like he was trying to do too much of a caricature. Yeah, I mean, he was he was basically doing the same thing as the original. But too cartoony. Yeah. Well, because you take that character, take him out of time, and yes. put him in 1998, even performed by the same exact person in the same exact way, it would be cartoony. Yeah. Because it's out of context of 1960. Yeah. That's probably true. I think he does a pretty good job, actually, of emulating what the original actor did. Martin Balsam, yeah. But I think he should have taken it a little bit more under his own hands. Yeah. And thought, maybe I should update this a little bit. Maybe when I- he intentionally tried to play it exactly like Martin Balsam did. Maybe when I first come on screen, I shouldn't obviously, obnoxiously, like, lean back and talk in that kind of- Whoa, calm down there, son. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Take it easy, friend. Just take it easy. Your girlfriend stole $400,000. Don't do it so obviously. Yeah. I'm a private dick. Yeah. I'm going to figure out this case. Do little things. And don't do that 60s voice that you were Uh just doing. Like, just little changes. Make it more believable. Put it in 1998, not in 1960. Yeah. I wasn't done ripping apart Vince Vaughn's okay, let's talk about interpretation. Vaughn okay. So when they're in the parlor, we already talked about the fact that he can't do duality. On top of that, someone needs to tell Vince Vaughn about dramatic pauses. Because he just shoots through that monologue. Yeah, uh-huh. This monologue, which is where we're learning all about who Norman Bates is and how crazy the mechanics are within his brain. Mm-hmm. And he just... You know what I think? I think we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. We can never get out. Always scratch and claw, but only at the ear, only at each other. And for all of it, we never budge an inch. I, it, it's almost like I need to say these words on the page in this way is, is what's going on inside his mind as opposed to how would this play out if this character was actually talking about this in real life. Yes. I try to tell that to my, my kids, like, like my kids who really care about acting. Like I really want them to, to realize that because you need to slow down because your audience needs to process what you're doing. Mm-hmm. 
This isn't real life. For, I mean, for certain scenes, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. this isn't real life. You need to let your audience clue cue into who, what you're showing. If you just go right through it, yeah, we get the information, but we don't get the characterization. Yeah. And they kind of need to be hand in hand or you didn't do your job as an actor. Yeah. When he is shouting at his mother, shut up, shut up, Mm -hmm. he is really screaming it. Why do I have to tell her because you don't have the guts? Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! So in the original, they made a point of aging down Norman uh, to make it feel more like a small child trying to stand up to his mother. In this one, he's just Norman Bates and he's just screaming at an old lady. Mm Mm-hmm. I get it. Everyone knows it's Norman Bates. Does that give you license to make it so clear that it's him? So this is one thing I, I, I wrote down. I said, I don't believe William H. Macy's Arbogast wouldn't immediately suspect this dude of killing her. Because in the original, Arbogast is like, I think, because this is all about money. I'm focused on the money. I think there's something fishy going on here, and you're not telling me everything you know. Probably because you thought she was a pretty lady, and you think you're doing the valiant thing. But also maybe because she paid you off. I don't believe in this scenario when... Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates is much more obvious as a more like sinister character and more intimidating, in fact, because, yes, while Anthony Perkins was sort of tall, but he was like kind of skinny and lanky. Vince Vaughn is not lanky. He's just tall (laughs) and big and big. Yeah. And so he gives us this more intimidation factor about him. Especially in comparison to William H. Macy, uh (laughs) who normally plays A skinny, scared dude, because he is a skinny, small guy. Exactly. And so I don't believe him as this private dick wouldn't immediately go to this guy murdered her and took the money. But he doesn't. I was actually talking about the shower scene. Oh, that it's obvious that... It's very obvious that it's a man wearing a wig. And they don't show you his complete face. It is kind of blacked out a little bit. Mm -hmm. But they show you the eyes and the facial structure. And so my question is, if we all already know it's him, does that give you license to make it obvious that it is him? I don't know why you wouldn't, if you're remaking this, not do that shot. Do the shot where it's peeled back and it suggests an old woman, not black face but all the rest is very visible maybe like once you peel back the curtain and you start to see old lady then we get a shot from behind or something like that where it's not so obvious so you think that they should have been less obvious yes i don't know you think they should have just showed his face like that i'm kind of just on the fence I can i can definitely see that because nobody's going to be fooled by psycho in 1998 exactly like i don't I'm really, really confused about it. I just kind of think I don't like what they chose to do. Mm -hmm. I feel like either make it a surprise, even though we all know. Yeah. Or show us. This weird in-between thing just kind of feels like you're like me and you didn't know what to do. And you didn't make a decision. (laughs) Yeah. Did you notice the sign on the Bates Motel said newly renovated? No. Yeah. Van Sant also, for some reason... When Arbogast gets killed at the top of the stairs, cuts away to a lady with a black mask on, and she turns her head to the camera, and a cow in the in the middle of a road. The fuck are you talking about? You didn't see that? What are you talking about? 
when Arbogast is killed at the top of the stairs, as he's getting slashed, it cuts away to a woman turning and looking at the camera with a black mask, and then another slash, and then a cow in the middle of a road. I do remember that. Yeah, I was like, wait, why? Yeah. And it, it never comes back. Yeah. It's not, like, what is that supposed to be suggesting? Did you look it up? No. I think it's supposed to be weird and avant-garde. It's supposed to evoke, I don't know, the... It's it's a baby cow, it's a calf, so maybe the vulnerability in the middle of the road, so it may be in danger, but it's just an odd place to throw in these sort of random, almost music video-esque interstitial clips. <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe it's because he's a music video director. Maybe he's just not a good director. Hey, Gus, you gonna direct? Yeah. Anything? No? <laughs> that's pretty funny. Hated Julianne Moore's performance. Hated her outfit. Which is a bummer because one of one of my favorite movies is Magnolia. I love Magnolia, and she is just manic and incredible in Magnolia. So seeing her in this, and it's just so boring and like, whoa, tone it down a little bit. Like, I like I said, she's manic in Magnolia, and I want her to tone it down in this. It's not like I have a problem with her being excitable. I think Julianne Moore is one of those actors who can be good when they have a good director. Like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Because a lot of her performances I don't like. You didn't like her in The Big Lebowski, where she plays an artist? No, she's great in The Big yeah, Lebowski. Uh-huh. Again, director. Uh-huh. I think you're really, I think she needs a really good director, or uh-huh. she doesn't do well. I hated her attitude that she gave, and I love the sister character. She's my, she's probably my favorite character of the whole movie. Lila, yeah. And then just, she just destroyed her, and that really pissed me off. I hate the turtleneck that uh, Vince Vaughn wears. Vince Vaughn wears. It looks god-awful on him. I kind of liked it. Oh, my God. There's that shot that was very, very, very famous from this remake is him with his hands in his pockets when Sam goes to the motel and starts shouting out Arbogast's name, and he's just standing there by the swamp with his hands in his pockets, and he turns back, and he's wearing that turtleneck. That's a very they, – they use that shot fucking everywhere in the promotional materials for this movie. That looks awful. I loved it. Can we talk about the masturbation scene? Yeah. I think Roger Ebert sums it up perfectly. Okay. He says – the most dramatic difference between Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Gus Van Sant's Shot by Shot, in quotes, remake, is the addition of a masturbation scene. That's appropriate because this new Psycho evokes the real thing in an attempt to recreate remembered passion. He's saying that this is masturbatorial. The remake itself, just as a whole. As for the masturbation scene, as Norman spies on Marion through the peephole between the parlor and room number one... Even if Hitchcock was hinting at sexual voyeurism in his 1960 version, it is better not to present it literally, since the jiggling of Norman's head and the damp off-screen sound effects inspire a laugh at the precise moment when one is not wanted. And it's true. In the theater, people were giggling. That's not what the point of this scene is. I feel like Gus did that... I would hope. This is my hope. My hope is that Gus did it because he thought that Hitchcock didn't include that because he couldn't. Right. I think that's what my hope is. Right. And that he doesn't understand that if Hitchcock wanted to get 
Norman Bates masturbating, he would have found a fucking way to do it. To more he communicate it than he, he didn't did, yeah. include it because he didn't need to. Yeah. He likes subtlety. Yeah. There's a part where he winks at Lila because Lila winks at him. And it's the cutest thing in it the world. It is very cute. He's so cute. I fucking love Vince But Bob. see, like, the, the thing is, is it was a little too... No, I just Swingers. mean I just mean that I think that he's so attractive. No, he no no no. He was it was adorable, but it's like I don't believe that Norman would have done that. Oh, I think it would have freaked him out. Right. I think Norman would have not had known what to do. Right. So when I see that, I see Vince Vaughn doing that, not Norman Bates. I mean, there's a ton of other things, but that's fine. The one other change I want to talk about that is probably for the best is they ever so slightly shorten the psychiatrist monologue at the end they take out a bunch of stuff that's just totally unnecessary and i appreciate that because it is really the worst part of the original i appreciate that they took out the second scene with the sheriff that was totally unnecessary at the church i appreciated that they shortened her driving sequences but all in all there's only like a four minute difference in length yeah i hated that when he is in the hotel room cleaning up, he doesn't take his time. Yeah, it seems very messy, especially with the mopping. Mm-hmm. I, I got the sensation that, I mean, we know from the end that Norman Bates has done this before. Norman Bates, not the mom, Norman Bates, not Norma. He's done this before, and he knows what needs to happen, and he's meticulous about it, and he should be good at it, not fast, but good. I got the sensation from the original that it was abnormal that he left behind that little slip of paper because he didn't catch it. But other than that, everything else was immaculate. Mm -hmm. And he overlooked the fact that he didn't rehang a new shower curtain because he didn't have one. In this one, though, when they do the mopping and it's just like, oh, that's that's just getting the blood everywhere. <laughs> like I, I, It was messy and it was fast and it, it wasn't as effective as conveying the tension in the original where it's just we're just going to watch this man uncut, not literally uncut, but like from beginning to end what his entire cleanup process is. And we see the whole thing. I liked that, that we got to see all of that. It, it increased the tension, which is something I'm really really looking for in a movie like this that's all i had to say about this movie okay i feel what do you think it got on rotten tomatoes 30 38 percent van sant's pointless remake neither Hmm. improves nor illuminates hitchcock's original 47 on metacritic and c minus on cinema score hit um Ebert's summary of his review comes down to basically this. I viewed Hitchcock's Psycho a week ago. Attending this new version, I felt oddly as if I were watching a provincial stock company doing the best it could without the Broadway cast. I was reminded of the child prodigy who was summoned to perform for a famous pianist. The child climbed onto the piano stool and played something by Chopin with great speed and accuracy. The great musician then patted the child on the head and said, You can play the notes. Someday, you may be able to play the music. Seriously, read this review. It's fantastic. But that really hits the nail on the head. And they talk about how, oh, what it is, it's a great experiment to show how uh, the reality of filmmaking is between what's actually there, right? Because Gus Van Sant 
basically did a pretty close to shot for shot remake and everyone hates it. So what Gus Van Sant is really doing is intentionally showing you what the essence of filmmaking really is by juxtaposing his shot for shot version with the with the Hitchcock remake. He's basically sacrificing himself to reveal something about the nature of cinema. Bullshit. It may reveal something about the nature of cinema, but that isn't there's no way that's why he was doing it. Oh, I want to I want to do something really shitty to show off how good the original is. Fuck you. He did it because of that. No (laughs) way. And I say really shitty. It's not really shitty. It really isn't on its own. It does not deserve to be a 38 Rotten Tomatoes. It's probably like, well, for what would you give it? Let me ask. I can't not think about it. That's fine. What would you give it? I would probably give it a 50. I was thinking more like a. I was I was going to go as high as a 65, but as much as we've been talking about what we don't like about it, I can't give it any higher than a 60. Mm-hmm. It's not a 38. That is mainly because people watch this movie and they're like, why? <laughs> but if it was if it existed on its own, it would have been interesting. It would have been OK, but juxtaposed next to. Something that you gave a 96 and I gave a 100. Mm-hmm. It didn't stand a chance. No. And again, this is not about, I, I say again because we've said this before in the past, this is not about just shitting on remakes or modern retellings of things like that. It's not our fault they all suck. Right? It, I mean, <laughs> and, they, and they don't. There are some remakes that we actually like, but this is just another that's, whereas Amityville Horror or, you know, better yet, Poltergeist, where it's like, this is just worse. <laughs> like, it's bad. Like, it's shitty. Why would you even do this? This is more, even more so, like, even if this was good, why? Mm-hmm. So, I guess that's what we think of 1998 Psycho. And that's it for this double feature episode. The late night double feature, feature show. What are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week, we continue our foray into sequels. Yeah. We are going to be watching A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, and a documentary, which I've wanted to see for a very long time. Uh It's on Netflix. It is called The Nightmare. What's it about? It's about people who have sleep paralysis and the nightmares that they have while they're they're awake. Oh, interesting. Yes, and interesting. so they, they kind of recreate the the nightmares that they have. That's that's cool. Yeah, so it's not like just a strict documentary. No, it has dramatic recreations with it. That's interesting. Okay, yes, and a good pairing with Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, especially with the subconscious. The second one is a lot about the subconscious. I'm I'm a little bit worried about doing this one because. We don't have the gay perspective to be sharing because right. uh, it's very we'll gay. We'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll we, talk we, we, will, it. we will talk about it when we get to it. But please don't be offended if we get anything wrong. If you want to share your thoughts about if you if you are maybe a queer person who has thoughts about Freddy's Revenge, I would very, very much like to hear from you, especially if that means we can get your perspective on the show. Mm-hmm. So that is next week. Nightmares. Nightmares. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com. Every episode goes up there. Every movie we've ever covered is listed there. You can leave a comment on any episode. Uh, you can also send us comments via Twitter at podcemetery or email podcemetery at gmail.com. I am 
slowly but surely catching up to current day with all the emails that we've got, and we have a bunch, so please don't hesitate to send them, but if I haven't responded yet, I am on my way to you. If you didn't already know, we have a lot of extra supplementary content on Twitter. There's a link to it whenever we do that in the description for the episode, and there's definitely content for this one. So make sure you follow that link, or just follow us on Twitter in general. Don't forget to review and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews are the biggest possible help to us. Thank you to everyone who's given us one of those. Better than that, sharing us with your friends, and better than that, listening in the GD first place. Thank you so very much. We love every one of you. Until next time, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Any last words? You know what I think? I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them, and none of us can ever get out. We scratch and we claw, but only at the air, only at each other, and for all of it, we never budge an inch. And I think he's very successful at doing it. And Vivian Lee does a great job of being afraid. Janet Lee. Vivian Lee is from uh, Gumbelin. Yeah. <laughs> the lady who had a mental breakdown. <laughs> she did. She showed up in her underwear at a stranger's house. Yes. Okay. So I was reading all about it. Uh-huh. She like believed she was like an angel and was going to take people up to God. Oh, she's probably high as fuck. She was on ecstasy when there it happened. There you go, see? Like, but she she did, then did, like, um interviews. Uh-huh. And she was like, I was living this double life because it was the only way I felt safe and now I've realized it's not real. <laughs> Fucking weirdo. And Heish. Isn't it Hesh? I always heard it as Heish. Hmm. But it might be Hesh. I don't know. Did I ever tell you? No, let's not go there. Did I ever tell you about boiling a cat? What? I dated a girl. <laughs> Who? <laughs> yes? Uh, let me put this in context. Please do. She was going to school. She was a vet tech. And there was a class on... Uh, anatomy uh, and one of her assignments was to build a model of the feline skeleton using like the real thing and so she was given access to a dead cat that she was supposed to boil to get all of the meat and every like basically to clean and bleach the bones and then put together the skeleton as it would normally be like with wire and stuff like that. So I, I helped her with that. <laughs> That's a thing that I've done in my past. Oh my God. I know, right? 
I wonder if every every vet had to do that. I probably not. <laughs> Jesus. Yep. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an idiot. Yep. Skeet, 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 skeet. I don't think you even need to put in the actual score, baby. You can just do it. Were you right? Did he do Serial Mom? Because you said that he did. No, I didn't say he did Serial Mom. Yes, you did. When? When we were talking about Serial Mom at some point, you said Gus Van Sant did it, and I said, that makes no sense. No, because John Waters did Serial Mom. Okay. I know that. Why would I didn't even have to look it up. I, Why would I have said Gus Van Sant? I don't know. Anyway. Are you sure you just didn't think Serial Mom when I was talking about something else? No. No, it's a John Waters. I know that for a fact. I remember knowing that when I saw it. We were talking about how much you hated Serial Mom. I didn't hate Serial Mom. No, you're thinking about something completely different. <laughs> I said my mom turned off Serial Mom in the middle of it because she didn't realize it was going to be so John Watersy. Like I, there's no way I said Serial Mom was directed by Gus Van Sant. <laughs> I challenge you to find that, and if you do. I will back down. <laughs> oh, will you if I find proof? Yes. I will accept the fact that it was a verbal mistake, but I will not accept the fact that I ever thought Gus Van Sant did Serial Mom. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, fucking really with the parasol? Jesus. What was that, Gus? What the fuck was that? Until next time, my name's Chris. I've been Kelsey. Fuck. <laughs>